last we left off, we were kind of at least halfway through chapter 14 of Genesis, the uh, Eric Targum, and we're going to be going through 14 into 15 this week. Michael, would you like to open us up reading it? <clears throat> Sounds good. So I'll start with the Melchizedek. Uh, scripture in Genesis 14. This is the Palestinian Targum. I'm going to start on verse 18. So if Josh can pull that up. <clears throat> Palestinian Targum, Genesis 14, 18. And Malka Zadiki, who was Shembar Noah, the king of Jerusalem, came forth to meet Abram and brought forth to him bread and wine. In that time, he, he ministered before Eloha Alaha. And he said, Blessed be Abram of the Lord God Most High, who for the righteous possesseth the heavens and the earth. And blessed be Eloha Alaha, who had made thine enemies as a shield, which receiveth a blow. And he gave to him one of the ten, of all which he brought back. And the king of Saddam said to Abram, Give me the souls of the men of my people, whom thou hast brought back, and the substance take to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Saddam, I have uplifted my hands and an oath, before the Lord God Most High, who for the just possesseth his possession of the heavens and the earth. If from a thread to the latchet of a sandal I receive anything of all that is thine, lest thou magnify thyself in saying, I have enriched Abram from mine own. Have I not power over all the spoil, apart from what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Enar, Eshkol, and Mamre, they also receiving their portion? I'm going to give Noah the first. First option here on Melchizedek. Off to know. I was flum. I, <laughs> I was fumbling to get my microphone back on. All right. Uh, yes. So let me pull this up here. All right. So as you can see here, I mean, obviously the the Aramaic Targum, it's going straight for uh, the the Shem Barnoa uh, explanation in the the in the Masoretic, it, it doesn't say Shem, and that leads many of us to to debate who Meshelzedek is, particularly in Hebrews. And that that came up to me recently, and I don't know if Michael's gonna be commenting on it. I'm I'm not gonna be commenting on it either. But some people think that the the writers of Hebrews believed that Meshelzedek was Messiah, um, and uh, that's something for you all to look into. Maybe Michael will comment on that. What I wanted to do is look at a few different passages here and i'm going to read a bedtime story for you tonight so you guys can all get tucked in and comfy i know john has got a cigar lit and well the first let's just go over this here this is jasher obviously the book of jasher goes with the shem narrative as well and it says and michelle zedek king of yerushalayim the same was shem so they tell you like michelle zedek was or Melchizedek was Shem, went out with the, his men to meet Abram and his people with bread and wine, and they remained together in the valley of Melech. All right. And then we see in the writings of Abraham, chapter 95, same events. This is what it says. When the king of Sodom heard that I had returned from the conquest of Amraphil, son of Nimrod, king of Shinar, he came forth to meet me at the valley of Shave, which was, is west of the city of Shalom, where Noah and Melchizedek dwelt. So that's interesting right there that it's saying it's identifying Melchizedek with a companion of Noah. And one of the big debates that people are bringing to the table now, particularly as we're looking at the, the timeline of the LXX versus the 
the Masoretic is that if you know the Masoretic compresses the years uh, after the flood uh, leading up to Abraham, they they take out several hundred years at least. I'd have to look at it again. They take out a lot of years. And and so if you're going off the Masoretic, it looks more like they're all contemporaries of each other, Nimrod, um, uh, Shem, Noah, and Abraham. When you get to the LXX, all of a sudden you're like, what's going on here? Because now they seem insanely old. Well, I've pointed this out before that I believe the city of Shalom, and I'm not just saying this just to say it. I mean, all... I, my research had already led me to believe that there was something very supernatural going on here, that the, the city of Shalom, where Shem uh, barred Noah and as well as Noah, that it was a, it was a supernatural place. It was, a, it was an actual portal to uh, heaven, essentially. And going to Shem school meant that you were – it was something really special. Um, so the very fact that he's a Mekilzadek here tells me that he is, he somehow circumnavigated Sheol. He was, Shem was one of those who, um, became an ascended, uh, an angelic, uh, creature. Um, so there's that. All right. What I wanted to do though tonight is, and I don't think I'll be stomping on, on Michael's research here by doing this is I'm going to be reading from a por portion from second Enoch. I have never read this before. And I've talked about it probably for over a year. I've, I've mentioned it in a few of my papers. And I feel like it's finally time to read it. Now, quick history lesson here or uh, literature lesson. In First Enoch, the book of First Enoch, the very last few chapters actually don't come from Enoch at all. And, and I actually think that the book of Enoch was probably like five different books. I don't think it was written that way. I think they assembled it at a later time. Uh, but the very end of it is a section from the lost book of Noah. We know that Noah authored at least one work according to Jubilees. And it, it it's a very interesting story at the end of first Enoch. Well, the sec second Enoch ends the same way with another portion of the lost book of Noah. And these are so enticing, but we get just in little sections. I'm like, man, I really wish we had these books. Um, but this tells about the first Melchizedek, uh, and it wasn't Shem, all right? So uh, basically to, to give the conclusion here is my belief is that Shem was named, he named himself Melchizedek or was given the title based upon his cousin. His cousin before the flood was the first Melchizedek. So here it goes. This is from chapter 71 of Second Enoch. Behold, the wife of Ner. Now Ner is Noah's brother whose name was Sopanim, being sterile and never having at any time given birth to a child by Ner. And so, so now keep in mind, she's not a virgin, all right? She's not a virgin. She just is incapable of, of having children, similar to Sarah with Abraham. And Sopanim was in the time of her old age and in the day of her death. She conceived in her womb, but Ner, the priest, so what is Nur a priest of? Again, he's Noah's brother. What is he a priest of? Uh, he's part of the Melchizedek order. Had not slept with her, nor had he touched her from the day that Yahuwah had appointed him to conduct the liturgy in front of the face of the people. And when Sopanum saw her pregnancy, uh-oh, she was ashamed and embarrassed, and she hid herself during all the days until she gave birth. And not one of the people knew about it. And when 282 days had been completed, 
and the day of birth had begun to approach, and Ner remembered his wife, and he called her to himself in his house so that he might converse with her. And so Panem came to Ner, her husband, and behold, she was pregnant. I would imagine you'd look pretty pregnant by 282 days. And the day appointed for giving birth was drawing near. And Ner saw her, and he became very ashamed. And he said to her, What is this that you have done, O wife? And why have you disgraced me in front of the face of these people? And now depart from me, and go where you began the disgrace of your womb. He's basically saying, Go back to your adulterous lover, so that I might not defile my hand on account of you, and sin in front of the face of Yahuwah. And so Panam spoke to Ner, her husband, saying, Oh, my Adonai, behold, it is the time of my old age, and the day of my death has arrived. I do not understand how my menopause and the barrenness of my womb have been reversed. It's an interesting word there, menopause. Um, you know, I don't know if the ancients would have used that word, but that's the translation from the, uh, the 1800s. So it's kind of interesting. And Nur did not believe his wife. And for the second time, he said to her, Depart from me, or else I might assault you and commit a sin in front of the face of Yahuwah. So he is verbally, I mean, he's like, I'm going to get out of here before I hit you, because that's how angry I am. I can't believe you would do this to me. This is so embarrassing. And it came to pass when Nur had spoken to his wife, Sopanum, that Sopanum fell down at Nur's feet and died. Now, keep in mind, it already explained she was already on her deathbed. I mean, she was getting ready to to die and she explained like i'm about ready to die here i don't know why i'm pregnant and uh you know please don't be angry with me nur was extremely distressed and he said in his heart could this have happened because of my word since by word and thought a person can sin in front of the face of yahuwah and that's fascinating he's saying there that you, it's not just actions that cause us to sin it's our very our very thoughts that's that's straight out of yahushua's teachings now, my Elohim, have mercy upon me. I know in truth in my heart that my hand was not upon her. And so I say, glory to you, O Yahuwah, or O Adonai, because no one among mankind knows about this deed which Yahuwah has done. And Ner hurried, and he shut the door of his house, and he went to Noah, his brother, and he reported to him everything that had happened in connection with his wife. And Noah hurried. He came with Ner, his brother, he came into Nur's house because of the death of Sopanim, and they discussed between themselves how her womb was at the time of giving birth. And Noah said to Nur, don't let yourself be sorrowful, Nur, my brother, for Yahuwah today has covered up our scandal, in that nobody from the people know this. So this is kind of interesting. Noah's thinking about covering this up. He's thinking this is pretty embarrassing, too. He's trying to save, you know. His, his brother's reputation, but I mean, this is the guy building the ark, right? He's a righteous, holy guy. Think about the scandal. Now, let us go quickly and let us bury her secretly. And Yahuwah will cover up the scandal of our shame. Because remember now in Torah, if, if someone undressed her and had relations with her, they uncovered their nakedness or the brother's nakedness. And uh, I guess really Noah's too, because Noah's the patriarch of the family. And they placed Sopanum on the bed. And they wrapped her around with black garments. I don't know what the importance of the black garments are. And shut her in the house, prepared for burial. They dug a grave in secret. 
And a child came out from the dead Sopanum, and he sat on the bed at her side. And Noah and Nur came in to bury Sopanum, and they saw the child. Now, I will remind you that Noah came out in a spectacular fashion as well. I mean, literally glowing, fiery eyes, like singing praises, you know, and freaked out everybody in the house. And uh, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, Noah's father accused uh, Noah's mom right there of having sex with the Watchers. He's like, that can't be my child. Um, you know, and she's like, no, you were the only guy. I guarantee it. Anyways, they saw the child sitting beside the dead Sopanum and wiping uh, his clothing. And Noah and Nur were very terrified with great fear because the child was fully developed physically, like a three-year-old. And he spoke with his lips and he blessed Yahuwah. And Noah and Nur looked at him and behold, the badge of priesthood was on his chest and it was glorious in appearance. I don't know what that the badge of priesthood is. That's kind of interesting, but um, something that they would have identified right away. And Noah and Nur said, Behold, Elohim is renewing the priesthood from blood related to us just as he pleases. Um, and so keep in mind here, the context is that um, by the time Noah was around, like everyone had left for the, the children of Cain. There was hardly any sons of Elohim left. Um, in that area. It was just, you know, obviously at the end, it was Methuselah. He died the year of the flood. And then it was just Noah and his his family. Uh, presumably Ner had died by this time too. He didn't even go on the ark. And Noah and Ner hurried and they washed the child and they dressed them in the garments of priesthood. And they gave him the holy bread and he ate it. And they called his name Mekilzedek. There it is. And Noah and Ner lifted up the body of Sopanum and divested her of the black garments and they washed her and they clothed her in exceptionally bright garments and they built a shrine for her. So that's interesting. So whatever these black garments represented, they've changed their story now. They're like, realize, okay, this was a supernatural uh, occurrence. This is Elohim personally interceding a, a type of almost immaculate conception, which all seemed to coincide with the Melchizedek priesthood every time we see it. And so they put her in bright garments. Noah and Ner and Melchizedek came and they buried her publicly. And Noah said to his brother Ner, look after this child in secret until the time because people will become treacherous in all the earth and they will begin to turn away from Elohim. And having become totally ignorant, they will put him to death. And then Noah went away to his own place and great lawlessness began to become abundant over all the earth in the days of Ner. And Ner began to worry ex excessively, especially about the child, saying, How miserable it is for me, eternal Yahuwah, that in my days all lawlessness has begun to become abundant over the earth. That's kind of like how many of us think, right? Like, why is it in our days that these things happen? And I realize how much nearer. Um, our end is and over all the earth on account of the lawlessness of the people. And now, Yahuwah, what is the vision about this child? And what is his destiny? And what will I do for him? Is it possible that he too will be joined with us in the destruction? And Yahuwah heeded Nur and appeared to him in a night vision. He said to him, Nur, the great lawlessness which has come about on the earth among the multitude, which I shall not tolerate. And behold, I desire now to send out a great destruction onto the earth, and everything that stands on the earth shall perish. But concerning the child, don't be anxious, Nur, because in a short while I shall send my um, archistratig. I don't know what that is. Archistratig. Michael. Oh, I guess that should be um, arch Archangel. Maybe that's like 
German or something like that. Maybe. Anyways, Michael. And he will take the child and put him in the paradise of Eden. That's kind of interesting. We see that happen a lot. That's that's where Enoch went. He went to uh, paradise in Eden. That's where a lot of these people who are taken away are taken there to Eden. In the paradise where Adam was formerly for seven years. It says seven years right there. Having so it says that Adam was there for seven years. So we could I, I wasn't prepared to match that up with Jubilees and look, but that's an interesting number. Having heaven open all the time up until when he sinned. And this child will not perish along with those who are perishing in this generation, as I have revealed it, so that Melchizedek will be the priest to all holy priests, and I will establish him so that he will be the head of the priests of the future. And Nur arose from his sleep and blessed Yahuwah, who had appeared to him, saying, Blessed be Yahuwah the Elohim of my fathers, who has told me how he has made a great priest in my day in the womb of Sopanim, my wife, because I had no child in this tribe who might become the great priest. But this is my son and your servant, and you are the great Elohim. See, how much farther does this go on? Let me just check here. Okay, we got a couple more pages, but this is good stuff. Therefore, honor him together with your servants and great priests, with Sit and Enos and Rusi and Abilam, I don't know who all these people are, and Prazadam and Malaliel and Sirach and Aruzan and Elim and Enoch. I know who Enoch is. And Methuselah and me, your servant Nur. And behold, Melchizedek will be the head of the 13 priests who existed before. That's kind of interesting. So there's, um, I wonder if there were, see, I didn't come prepared for this, but I wonder if there were 13 um uh, fathers going down. They were each, um, you know, the head of the order of the ancients. And afterward, in the last generation, there will be another Melchizedek. Well, isn't that interesting? The first of 12 priests, and, and the last will be the head of all, great archpriest, the word and the power of Elohim, who will perform miracles greater and more glorious than all the previous ones. So let me read that one more, one more time in case you guys missed that. So he's talking here that this Melchizedek was the, uh, the 14th priest of the order to come, that there were these high priests uh, going from Adam down, and that this, the first Melchizedek here, would be head priest over them. But in the end, and the, the, the very last Melchizedek to come, will be the head of all, a great archpriest. He will be the priest of all priests. It says he will be the very word and power of Elohim, who will perform miracles greater and more glorious than all the previous ones. Praise Yah. He, Melchizedek, will be priest and king in the place uh, Akuzan, that is to say, in the center of the earth where Adam was created, and there will be his final grave. And so that he's saying that the, the final Melchizedek is going to uh, die in Jerusalem. And in connection with that archpriest, it is written how he also will be buried there where the center of the earth is, just as Adam also buried his own son there, Abel, whom his brother Cain murdered, for he lay for three years unburied until he saw a bird called Jackdaw had buried his own young. And all by all accounts, we see that Abel uh, went a long time without being buried. That's the first time I've read that it, it, his burial coincided with a, with a bird. I know that great confusion has come, and in confusion, this generation will come to an end, and everyone will perish except that no, my brother will be preserved. And afterward, there will be a planting from his tribe, and there will be other people, and there will be another Melchizedek, the head of priests reigning over the people and performing the liturgy for Yahuwah. Again, amen, that's our high priest. And when the child had been 40 days in Nur's tent, Yahuwah said to Michael, go down onto the earth to Nur the priest 
and take my child Mechilzedek, who was with them, and place them in the paradise of Eden for preservation. For the time is approaching, and I will pour out all the water onto the earth, and everything that is on the earth will perish. That's interesting right there. It says all the water is coming down. Everything from above, it's all coming down. And Ner did not realize who was speaking to him, and his heart was confused. And he said, when the people find out about the child, then they will seize him and kill him, because the heart of these people is deceitful in front of the face of Yahuwah. Ner said to, to the one who was speaking, the child is not with me, and I don't know who you are. And he who was speaking to me answered, don't be frightened, Ner. I am Yahuwah's archangel. Um, Archistr I, I got to say this in German. It's archangel, archangel but it's uh, Archistr Arch Archistr Archistratine. I started uh, excavating this area in 1961. I wasn't even going to drive the soon. Okay. All right. Yahuwah has sent me, and behold, I shall take your child today. I will go with him, and I will place him in the paradise of Eden, and there he will be forever. And when the twelfth generation shall come into being, and there will be one thousand and seventy years, and there will be born in that generation a righteous man, and Yahuwah will tell him that he should go should go out to that mountain where stands the ark of Noah, your brother, and he will find there another Melchizedek who has been living there for seven years, hiding himself from the people who sacrificed the idols, so that they might not kill him. He will bring him out, and he will be the first priest and king in the city, Salim, in the style of Melchizedek, the originator of the priest. Uh, the years will be completed up to that time. 3,000, I think that's talking about Shem there, the next Melchizedek. Uh, 3,432 from the beginning and the creation of Adam, and from that Melchizedek, that the priest will be 12 in number until the great uh, Igumen. That is to say, leader will bring out everything visible and invisible. And Nur understood the first dream and believed it. And having answered Michael, he said, Blessed be Yahuwah who has glorified you today for me. And now bless your servant Nur, for we are coming close to departure from this world. And take the child and do to him just as Yahuwah said to you. And Michael took the child on the same night on which he had come down. And he took him on his wings and he placed him in the paradise of Eden. And Nur got up in the morning. He went into his tent and he did not find the child. And there was instead of joy, very great grief because he had no other son except this one. Thus Nur ended his life. And after him, there was no priest among the people. And from that time, great confusion arose on the earth. Um, there's just a few more paragraphs. I'll go ahead and finish this. This is the very end of uh, Second Enoch. And I'll hand it over to Michael. Thanks for your patience. And Yahuwah called Noah unto the Mount Ararat between Assyria and Armenia, in the land of Arabia, beside the ocean. And he said to him, Make there an ark with 300 lackets in length, and in a width 50 lackets, and in a height 30, and two stories in the middle, and a stories of one lacket. And of their lackets, 300, but of ours also 50, 15,000. This is the first time I've ever read, too, that uh, the place where it apparently landed is the place that it li was lifted up as well. Uh, in agreement with this... Uh, let's see. Well, let's keep reading that. Okay. Yahuwah Elohim opened the doors of heaven. Rain came onto the earth for 150 days and all flesh died. And that's kind of the end of it there. So interesting story. The first Mechilzadak. Uh, hopefully you guys all enjoyed that. And I'm going to hand it back over to Michael. All right. That was great stuff. And I don't think we'll be stealing thunder. <laughs> um, that was good stuff. I didn't even think to go to second Enoch. Um, 
Did you finish your 14 or should I split? Do you remember? I think that's kind of all I had on Mikhilzadek. Okay. So I think you should just go ahead. Perfect. Sounds great. Um, okay. So 18, uh, I'm just going to read the KGV. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And, you know, I was reading that this is the first time that the word priest was used in the Old Testament. I thought that was interesting. Now, I personally believe Adam was a priest, but it didn't mention it. So I thought that was cool that Melchizedek in the 66, this was the first time a priest was mentioned. Um, I'm going to be posting, I know... Uh, C-R-L-O-A-S was asking about links. We don't really have a document, but I will be posting a bunch of pages uh, that you can follow along. There's the first one. Um, this is, uh, I want to say this is Jeff Benner, but I'm not sure where I got this. The name Malkizedek literally means my king is Sadiq. So my king is just or righteous. Note, note, note that it does not mean king of righteousness, as is sometimes claimed by some theologians. Since the word Malki contains a possessive pronoun. So I thought that was interesting. Um, uh, that it means my king is righteous. What do you guys make of that? Um, obviously, we know Messiah is Malkizedek. A little bit trouble following along with this, but I thought this was interesting. Um, king of righteousness, anointed king, Mashiach. King of peace, Messiah is the prince of peace. Priest of the Most High God. I like how it does show the verses there. High priest of Eternity. Both king and priest. Both king and priest. No Torah genealogy. Um, the eternal word of God is the Messiah. Not a seed of Aaron. Messiah is obviously from Judah. Greater than the Levites. And greater Avadah than the high priest in the altar at the tabernacle. Based on the word of oath. I'd have to check that Psalmist passage. Let me, let me put that in there. And Bob's not working. But, uh, and the eternal priesthood, and they both offered bread and wine. And I'll be talking more about that. I found some interesting things on the bread and wine thing. Um, so, you know, I like to give all takes on it. Some people don't like it, but um, some rabbinic thought on Melchizedek. Um, they, they taught that Melchizedek acted as a priest and handed down Adam's robes to Abraham. I thought that was cool. The, that, they also taught that the Melchizedek School was one of three places where the Holy Spirit manifested itself. And then they say Melchizedek's blessing yielded prosperity for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, now, I just read the KGV. The Palestinian obviously goes a little bit deeper and says, Ed Malchizedeki, who was Shem Bar Noah. So it names him. the king of Yushalayim, came forth to meet Abraham and brought forth bread and wine. Um, some thought on Shem and a possible post-mill thing in here. Um, so, so he was the firstborn son of Noah. He, he personally served the great patriarch Methuselah. And obviously, I think this is Hazaretic timeline. Um, we'll get to it uh, a little bit in a little bit. But the great patriarch Methuselah for 98 years before the flood, um, which he knew direct. He knew Adam and Shem had witnessed firsthand the devastation of the flood and then Yah's judgment. After the deluge, he settled in Salem, where he founded a school for Torah. We always talk about that, the school of Shem. Um, and we've talked about this. Shem was president at the circumcision of Abraham and Ishmael. Isaac studied with him. Rebecca's wife went to visit him when she was struggling with her pregnancy. Um, and when Jacob finally, quote-unquote, stole the blessing from Esau, he fled 
from his brother, right, going first to Shem's school in Salem. Again, this is rabbinic. Um, but this is this is the possible post mill. Shem is considered one of the four righteous men of the dispersion period, the period after the flood, in which the descendants of Noah were to command to settle on the earth. Others are Noah, Ebor, and Abram. And obviously, this has 400 years. But so the dispersion period, you know, you read in James, oh, the 12 tribes are dispersed, right? Where are the dispersion? Where are in the dispersion? This comes after the flood. This is saying it's after the flood. And, you know, you sh- we always talk about Messiah coming back in the days of Noah. Assume that's the flood, right? So this is saying after coming back, after that day of Noah, I think there's a dispersion. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. And it, could, it, could it possibly be a post-mill worldview where this is kind of sh- shadowing that it's after his coming, second coming? There's a dispersion. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Um, so some more tradition. They, they say Melchizedek was the first to initiate and complete a wall in the circumference of the city and had to exit Salem to reach Abram and his men. Obviously, this is talking about Shem. So upon exiting Salem, he presented them bread and wine with the intent to refresh them from their journey. Um, okay, so it, it also they also attribute him as a pioneer in banning prostitution. Of Shem. So other takes besides the rabbinic on Melchizedek. The Zohar, they think it, it was Aaron, Aaron Kohan Gadol, the high priest. Melchizedek was Aaron. I don't know about that. Uh, Josephus refers to Melchizedek as a Canaanite chief in the war of the Jews, as a priest in the antiquity of the Jews. Philo identifies Melchizedek with the Logos as priest of God and honored as an untutored priesthood. Actually, I do have something on Second Book of Enoch here, so I'm not going to touch that one. Yeah, he didn't, yeah, no mention that, Gabriel, Michael, and some of them. Okay. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, founded in Cave 11, they say that Melchizedek is seen as a divine being in the text and is referred to as an El or Elohim. That is usually referred to God. According to this text, Melchizedek seems to appear at the end of days as a heavenly angelic warrior judge and high priest atones for the quote-unquote sons of light at the great day of atonement which introduces the redemption of the final jubilee of history he defeats Belial and his lot executing judgment on behalf of God this was found in Qumran and you know I started studying a little bit more on the Zadok and they're all about the sons of light I thought this was very interesting that Melchizedek at least according to these Dead Sea Scrolls uh, pretty much describes the Messiah um, the Qumran scrolls also indicate that he was used as a name of the archangel Michael sometime, interpreted as a heavenly priest. Michael as Melchizedek, contrasted with Belial, who was given the name Elki Resha, or king of wickedness. Um, okay, so I'm not going to read that. Okay, number 19. So this is the bread and wine stuff. So, and he blessed them, blessed be Abraham of the Lord God, who for righteousness possessed the heaven and the earth. Actually... It wasn't the bread and wine, but all right. Well, I'm going to go over the bread and wine now. Now, look at this, guys. This was pretty interesting. Um, all the verses I found in the in the uh, 66 about bread and wine, and as you know, I have an affinity for wisdom. It appears wisdom's kind of in the Melchizedek order. So, wisdom has built her house. She has owned her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servant girls. 
He calls from the highest places in the town. You that are simple, turn in here. Those without sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink one. I've mixed. So she's doing the same thing as a Melchizedek. In that order, it's an order. I don't see where it says it only has to be a male. The Levites, but uh, Proverbs 4, there could be bad bread and wine. So do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not go on, turn away from it and pass on, for they, they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Ecclesiastes 9, go eat your bread with enjoyment and drink your wine with a merry heart. That was good. It says, let your garments be white, not let oil be lacking on your head. I mean, this is awesome. Enjoy life with your wife, who you love. Um, Isaiah 36 um, says, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from your own vine and your own fig tree. Drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own. A land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Thomas land talk right there. Um, Genesis. May God give you the dew of the heaven, the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. And then finally, we, we know this one, Messiah. Um, about the Passover. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took up a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took a loaf of the bread. We know that. What do you guys think about that? I know Skiba talks about possible um, Nazarite vow. Um, what do you guys think about that? That he did not drink of the wine right there. Um, so Jewish tradition has something similar. So it's called the Kiddush. Literally means sanctification. Um, it's a blessing recited over wine or grape juice to sanctify the Shabbat and the holy days. Before reciting the Kiddush, the halal, which will be the next food item eaten in honor of the Sabbath or holidays, first covered with a cloth. Uh, I've done a few of those early on in my walk. Kiddush. Where do they get it from? They get it from, you know, Melchizedek. Um, okay, number 20. It says, And blessed be the Most High God, which have delivered thine enemies into thy hand. He gave them tithes of all. So, pictures for you. These are the different tithes. Um, I'm not going to read the Jewish words, but all kosher cattle were tithed, and one-tenth of the animals were brought to Jerusalem, offered as a sacrifice. You know, the second one, a tenth of the farmer's produce was given to the Levite. They didn't have any portions of their own, and it was a tithe. The land itself was tithe. Uh, we know about that. Shemitah, year, seven-year sabbatical. And finally, I don't know if this, I guess it was, I don't know. No, this is just tradition. But today, most tithing is done in terms of money. Um, traditional term for the tithe on money, income, and distinguished from agricultural and cattle tithes. So every Jew is obligated to get a tenth of his earnings to charity. Um, okay, finally. So I'm ending it here soon. A few left. Um, this was cool. I have a chiastic structure coming up. I know Katie likes that. But then I have a comparison to valleys. So last episode, we read the beginning of this chapter, which talked about the Valley of Siddim. And then at the end, there was the Valley of Shavah. And so I want to go with the difference between those. And so, as we read, Abraham returned from his victory and went to the Valley of Shavah, the king's valley, where Melchizedek brought out bread and wine and blessed him. So notice that this makes for two valleys in the same chapter. And as I said, we were, I talked about the Valley of Siddim, where the great battle took place. Now we're in the Valley of Shavah, where great blessings take place. So, as you can see, a place for battle and death, a place for blessing. 
King of Sodom goes out to meet Mesopotamia. King of Sodom goes out to meet Abraham. Black slime or tar, red wine. People physically sink down into the earth. Abraham is lifted and elevated spiritually. Nine kings are mentioned representing much of the world. A tenth king is mentioned in Melchizedek. King of Sodom loses everything. King of Sodom regains it. Valley of great noise, swords, clashing, war drums, sounding. Quiet valley, words are spoken. External and internal battles. I thought that was cool. All in the same chapter, two valleys. Um, here's the chiastic structure one on this chapter. So, let's see. So, you know, as, as I said earlier, there was war earlier on. Chitalomar and the kings that were with them. Um, kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and they went their way, and they took a lot. Remember that one? Abraham's brother's son. Um, and there came one that escaped, told Abraham. We, we were saying it's Og, maybe, in the Targum. Central Axis. Now he dwelt by the ten terebrints of the Mamre. Mamre, the brother of Eshkol, and the brother of Anar, and these were the confederate with Abraham. So now we're going back on the Micaiah structure, and Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive. So um, Abraham pursued, and he brought back all the goods, and brought back his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also. And he returned the slaughter of Chedromar and the kings that were with him to the Valley of Shava. So there's, you, know, you see it everywhere in Genesis. Um, it's amazing. You know, it's definitely a, it's a, finally, I mean, I don't know. I'm not going to explain it. Um, more quick things. This is Abraham's route that he took when he rescued Lot. Um, so if you just want to get that. And finally, and then we'll be done with 14, the Hebrew word malak, or king, appears 28 times in this chapter, emphasizing the significance of Abraham's victory. That's what I got for 14. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, did I read 15, though? I'll, I'll go ahead and read 15, and then I'll give you first commentary and on that chapter. And that was really great stuff, and obviously didn't know what you're going to pull out of Mikilzadek, but that was all really good. So... Here we are continuing on. This is chapter 15 of the uh, Genesis Targum. After these words, when the kings had gathered together and had fallen before Abram, and four kings had been slain, and nine hosts brought back, Abram reasoned in his heart and said, Woe to me, because I have received the reward of my appointments in this world and have no portion in the world to come. Or, peradventure, the brethren and friends of those who have been slain will combine in legions and come against me. Or at that at that time, there was found with me the reward of a little righteousness, so that they fell before me. But the second time, reward may not, may not be found with me. And he's <laughs> doing a lot of reasoning here. And by me, the name of the heavens may be profaned. Thereupon was the word, or they stay here, state here specifically, Pithgama, of Yahuwah with Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, for if these men should gather together in legions and come against thee, my word, Memra, so they're separating the two words, different uh, different words in Aramaic, will be thy shield. And also if these fall before thee in this world, the reward of thy work shall be kept and be prepared before me in the world to come great exceedingly. And Abram said, Yahuwah Elohim, great blessings has thou given me. And great are they which it is before thee to give me. Nevertheless, what profit is to me when I pass from the world without children 
and Eliezer the manager, or Bar Farnasath, the son of sustenance of my house, by whose hands signs were wrought for or to me in Darmasek, expects to be my heir. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast not given a son, and behold, the manager of my house will be my heir. And behold, a word from before Yahuwah was to him, saying, He shall not be thine heir, but a son whom thou wilt beget shall be thy heir. And he brought him forth without and said, Look up now to the heavens and number the stars. And if thou art able to number them, and he said, So will be thy sons. And he believed in Yahuwah and had faith in the Mamri, or the word of Yahuwah. He reckoned it to him for righteousness, because he parleyed not before him with words. And he said to him, I am Yahuwah who brought thee out of the fiery furnace of the Kazdai to give thee this land to inherit. And he said, Yahuwah Elohim, by what may I know that I shall be the heir of it? And he said, bring me oblations and offer before me an eff, uh, a heifer, heifer of three years and a goat of three years, a ram of three years and a dove and the young of a pigeon. And he brought all these before him and divided them in the midst and set in order every division over against its fellow but the fowl he divided not. And there came down idolatrous peoples, which are like to unclean birds, to steal away the sacrifices of Israel. But the righteousness of Abram was a shield over them. And when the sun was nearing to set, a deep sleep was thrown upon Abram. And behold, four kingdoms arose to enslave his children. Terror, which is Babel, darkness, which is Madai, greatness, which is Javan, Decline, which is Perez, which is to fall, and to have no uplifting, and from whence it is to be that the children of Israel will come up. And he said to Abram, Knowing thou must know that thy sons shall dwell in a land not their own, because thou hast not believed, and they will subjugate and afflict them four hundred years. And also that people whom they shall serve, I will judge with two hundred and fifty plagues. And afterwards they shall go forth into liberty with great riches. And thou shalt be gathered to thy fathers. Thy soul shall rest in peace. And thou shalt be buried in a good old age. And in the fourth generation of thy sons, they will return hither to inherit. Because the guilt of the Amore is not yet complete. And when the sun had set there was darkness. And behold, Abram saw Gehenna ascending, smoke with flaming coals and burning flakes of fire wherewith the wicked are to be judged. And behold, he passed between those divisions. In that day, Yahuwah ordained a covenant with Abram that he would not judge therein his sons, but would deliver them from the kingdom, saying, To thy sons will I give this land from Nilos, or the Nile of Mizraim, unto the great river, the river Ferath, the Shalmiah, and the Kenizah, and the Kadmonea, and the Hite and the Fezeray, and the Gibberay, and the Emeray, and the Kenanay, and the Girgashay, and the Jebusay. Over to you, Michael. <laughs> what a way to end that one. <laughs> that was funny. Um, all right, so I'm going to start on, obviously, number one. So I thought I struggled on Chapter 15 to find some good nuggets, so I'll let you guys be the judge of that. But um, my wife thought it was pretty good, but she's biased. Um, number one says, after, in KGV, 
After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Um, so the word study is on that word reward, and it's, um, I think it's kind of cool. So it's, it's Jacob. So Genesis 31, here it is. So, um, basically, Jacob sent out and called Rachel and Leah to his flock and said, I see your father's attitude that is not friendly toward me. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, do not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages or, or your reward. And all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages or your reward. Then all the flock brought forth striped. So for those who aren't familiar with the story, I thought this was a decent summary. I kind of want to link it back to number one so it was a deal so all the sheep would belong to laban and jacob's wage would be the offspring of the sheep however laban made it more complicated when he clarified that only the spotted speckled and striped lambs would be jacob's um then so laban pulls a switch by taking all the sss sheep and moving them a three days journey away from his flock he is left with only solid co colored sheep <coughs> but remember he can only keep the sss lambs Laban was sure that the only the solid-colored sheep would produce solid-colored lamb. So Jacob had a plan. He peeled the bark from sticks of wood to make them look striped. He then had the rams and his mate in front of those striped sticks. And lo and behold, solid-colored sheep produced lambs. And so I want to elaborate on the word, the reward. So is this possible? Like, you know, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and legs, seeding great reward. Like, just look at the faith Jacob had that Abram. Fear not, fear not. I will give you this great reward. Trust him. Um, whenever, you know, when you're given no striped lambs, you know, uh, Yah can make a way. So I thought that was a cool little word study there that kind of led to that. Um, Palestinian, of course, way different, way different. If you guys are following along, um, I'll post it here because <laughs> look at that. That's the way different. So you have one sentence in the KGB and then you have this. So after these words, when the kings had gathered together and had fallen before Abram, and four kings had been slain, and nine hosts brought back Abram, Abram reasoned in his heart and said, Woe to me, because I have received the reward of my appointments in this world, and have no portion in the world to come. Peradventure, the brethren and friends of those who have been slain will combine in legions and come against me. For that at that time there was found with me the reward of little righteousness, so that they fell before me. But the second time reward may not be found with me. And by me the name of the heavens may be profaned. Thereupon the word of the Lord with Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, but these men shall gather together in legions. Interesting legions, too. With, um, that's what the demons were in, in the New Testament. Come against thee, my word, or Memra, will be thy shield. And also these fall before thee. Um, so obviously I have to talk about that word Memra. So Memra is an Aramaic term, which means word, decree, or speech. Sometimes the Hebrew word pronounced deber is used instead of memra, which also means word. Um, some extra canonical books that talk about the word of the Lord. Uh, fourth Ezra, second Ezra, six says, And I said, O Yahweh, you spoke at the beginning of creation and said on the first day, Let heaven and earth be made, and your word accomplish the work. And Wisdom of Solomon 16 says, No medicine or ointment cured them. They were restored to health by your word, O Lord, the word which heals all humanity. You know, just trying to give more examples of what the word is and the power that it has. Number two, it says, um, 
guess I don't have to read that because I'm not doing word study. Okay, Palestinian says, And Abram said, Lord God, great blessings hast thou given me. And great are they, which it is, before thee give to me, nevertheless, what profit is to me? And I pass from this world without children, and Eliezer, the manager of my house, by whose hands were wrought to me in Darmasek, expects to be my heir. Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast not given a son, and behold, the manager of my house will be my heir. So, um, so in, I found this commentary that said, In the ancient Near East, there was a well-attested practice to ensure an heir, even if no son were born to the man. So the childless couple would adopt one of the servants born into the household. This son would care for them in their old age and would inherit their possessions and property at the time of their death. At this low point in Abram's faith, it was the best for which he could hope for. So Yah promised Abram far more than which he could provide for himself. Eliezer was not the heir that he had promised. His descendants were come from his own reproductive cells. He would have a son of his own. Um, so some verses on having children. So obviously there's Genesis verse. First Samuel also characterizes childlessness as a misfortune. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Psalms 127 make clear that having a child is a blessing. From God, and then Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 28 threaten childlessness as a punishment. Okay, this will be my last thing. I'll hand off to Noel number four, uh, word study. It says, "This was a good one too." Um, and behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, "This shall not be thine heir. He that shall come forth out of thy own bowels shall be thine heir." So, out of thy own bowels, the word I'm looking at in Second Samuel 7:10 through 13. This was amazing. This was. Messiah. So, I will establish a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may live in their own place, and not to be disturbed again, nor will malicious people oppress them any more as previously, even from the day that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are finished, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your descendant after you will come from you or out of thy own bowels and i will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i just thought that was amazing the same word was used in both talking about abraham his son then yahuwah basically saying um, his son and will establish a kingdom and his throne will be forever what a prophecy of yeshua coming from this one word study still have a lot left but i'll hand off to know Right, I think you just covered verse one, right? So I'll do the same. And uh, no, one through four. Sorry. Oh, you did one through four. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll cover one through four then. <laughs> so the first verse was uh, quite wordy. Um, Abram obviously had a lot of concerns, and it sounds a lot like my own thought process. Um, you know, if you ever climbed into my head, like he's thinking through all these different scenarios. And you know, we read in Romans about Abraham's faith. And that righteousness specifically was imputed due to his faith. And I was covering that in the, the first six chapters of my Roman study when we went through that. Well, one thing that I really found fascinating here, and this is all based on his faith, is that we see Abram concerned about his receiving his portion in the world to come now rather than later and profaning heaven. And I thought that was a really fascinating insight into uh, a man of faith and you know, it's, it's like I was going through the Roman study that what, what modern Christianity, evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, denominationalism, you know, whatever, uh, polyanity, the way they put it now is that 
you know, faith is like, you know, you're given righteousness and you're good to go. And, and Abraham clearly didn't feel that way. I mean, he's like, I have faith that Yahweh is going to come through on his end of the bargain, but I still have uh, my end to uphold in the sense that I am a representative of him and I want to represent his kingdom to come. And I don't want to, um, you know, I want rewards. And this, what I just read in Genesis 15, one reminds me of uh, another of Paul's letters in Philippians 2.12. And I actually really love this verse. It says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Isn't that interesting? He's Paul's writing these people and saying, I know you were obedient to the Father, to the Torah, obviously, while I was in your presence, because Paul was Torah observant. Uh, he says, but even when I'm gone, that's that's great that you do that then too. It's almost like uh, sometimes when I talk to people, I get the sense that they say certain words around me because they think that I will approve of it. And I, I kind of get the sense that they don't actually live it out in their own lives. Um, they're they're kind of just doing it because they're kind of in my presence. But Paul's like, even outside my presence, you're doing this. And this is this is the kicker right here. Uh, what I love, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Um, in our present culture, where Christianity teaches entitlement, that you are entitled to your salvation. They don't. They may not use that word, but you go in and talk to people. That's pretty much the attitude they have. Um, this is like this exemplifies what we're seeing with Abram here. Very, very good. I think that he was working out his salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Michael already went over the, the difference between Pithgama and Memre, Memra. And, you know, in the Aramaic, they would have literally been two different words. For some reason, the translator made them both word. And I, I feel like that's, it wasn't well done because Pithgama, it means edict, decree, or, uh, or a, a sentence by a judge. So why didn't it just translate to say Yahuwah, uh, that he, in his edict, in his decree, that would have made a lot more sense to me, the word, whatever it is, what it is. But then we see uh, Memra, which means uh, speech, right? It is literally the word of Yahuwah. And what we see here is that, uh, let me pull this up again. These don't disappear on me now. It says, my word, Memra, will be thy shield. Uh, and I, I love that because it, it, it's literally saying that, well, it's not literally saying. It's it's pretty close to saying that my, uh, Yahuwah is saying, my word will be your salvation. In fact, we do see that in other parts of the Targum where the word of Yahuwah is Yeshua, right? So here are some passages that I was looking up that refers to um, the shield. Um, now keep in mind that it is Yehusha who is our shield. So this is what it says in Psalm 18, verse 30. This Elohim, his way is perfect. The word of Yahuwah proves true. He who, the word of Yahuwah, is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And that's exactly what Yehusha said when he was uh, over there and uh, I think he was uh, what was it no he wasn't looking over Jerusalem when he said it but he he said that he he said he wishes that he could be like the mother hen that that would gather all the chicks under his wing right like that's what he wanted and he would he would protect them 
if they would, but they didn't want that, right? They didn't want to have him be their, his um, protector. And then we see in Psalm 512, for you bless the righteous, O Yahuwah, you cover him with favor as with a shield. Um, and of course, we see that Avram or Abraham was uh, imputed with righteousness based on his faith. And uh, he was uh, protected by the word as a shield. Uh, here's another one from Philippians 4, 7, already quoted from this epistle tonight. But it says, and the shalom of Elohim, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Yehusha HaMashiach. And the same thing as guarding like a shield. But here we see in Psalm 28, 7, Yahuwah is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 18, 2, Yahuwah is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my Elohim, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my Yeshua, my stronghold. Psalm 91, 4, he will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings, you will find refuge, which is exactly what Yahushua was quoting. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So, again, Yahushua was saying that he wanted to play that role of the shield, but uh, the Yahudim didn't want it. Uh, they did not want him to be their protector. And um, obviously, the, the, the word savior means so much more than it's almost like when I hear evangelicalism talking about it, it's almost like one dimensional, like he saved me from my sins. I'm like, what does that mean? And it always means that they can be lawless. It almost always comes down to that. Like their idea of a savior is, I mean, there's so much more to what a savior is than um, the false notion that you can just go and sin afterwards. Second Thessalonians 3.3, 3, but Yahuwah is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your Elohim. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that could be a whole study right there on who the right hand of, um, of Yahuwah Elohim is. And, you know, I think probably most people here would, would agree that it's uh, the right hand is who sits at his right hand. It's Yahusha. Second Timothy 4.18. What does this one say? Yahuwah will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom yeah i hadn't read that one in advance it's not a great one and then here we see psalm 32 7 i don't even know why i included that one you are a hiding place for me you preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts of deliverance Selah. all right so the last two were were not you know i put them at the bottom of the list for a reason but all right let's see what else we got here all right verse two um and okay, so I found this really interesting that, you know, Abram is always, it's really interesting to see his relationship with the father. I and mean, we're going to see this later with Sodom and Gomorrah, where he uh, just, uh, he kind of speaks his mind and he goes in boldness and says, you know, and, and Moshe was in his humility was very similar as well. You see these great men of Elohim and they just go and they, they speak very boldly to him, and he's like, um, so the um, the manager of my house, um, he's you know Eliezer, he's gonna be, he's gonna be the heir, and it, that's a frightening thought to think about. That uh, he was, according to the Targum, he was either the son or the grandson of Nimrod. All right, and Nimrod, of course, was a 
uh, lineage of Ham. And of course, my perspective on this and my point of view is that he was uh, the seed of the serpent initially. I mean, Ham came through the seed of the serpents. Well, I, in my la in our last study earlier tonight, when I was going over the 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 book of gleanings and the book of creation, which were Egyptian texts, it and I'm I, I'm I, I didn't feel comfortable enough bringing that into this study, but it's really interesting that at the same time it describes what I believe is the Genesis 13 war, uh, this massive war that we were talking about the last couple of weeks that you know basically. Uh, went all the way down in Saudi Arabia, probably into Egypt, all the way up to Lebanon, Damascus, um, all the way up to Babylon. And what's fascinating is that it says that the people that came from Nimrod's side, that they were the people leading it, they were the seed of the serpents. And I, I read that, I almost fell out of my chair. Um, so you... My point here is, and I could do. Uh, we'll get to genealogy later on with uh, um, with other people that come into Abraham's life. But he seemed to be surrounded by people that were accredited being the seed of the serpents, and it's it's almost a miracle. It, well, it is a miracle. It is a straight out miracle that the seed of of Shem, the seed of uh, all the way going back through Noah to Seth. Uh, through Adam was perfectly preserved all the way down to Yehuda because particularly with Abraham, you see so many instances where he was ready to hand the keys of the kingdom, the inheritance over to the wrong seed. Um, and um, that's just incredible to think about. All right. Um, and remember now he's got, according to the writings of Abraham, he's got something like 50 daughters or some insane number. I mean, he he's has other wives. He's got tons of daughters. It just I imagine like like a like the little lady with the shoe, you know, and like children are falling out the windows and stuff. I mean, just imagine like daughters running amok all around Abram, and uh, you know, like the just imagine like the old Jewish man just surrounded by young girls, and um, and so he's still trying to work out his um. The, the mystery, and this is what we read in Romans 4.18. This probably, I think I did this a couple months ago in the Roman study, but Paul is talking about Abraham, and he says, who against hope believed in hope? Let me say that again. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that, that which was spoken? And so what we're, what we're essentially seeing here is that um, – Abraham had, or I guess I should say Abram at this point, he had no idea how this was going to work out. Like he's like, um, apparently I'm shooting, if it comes down to boys, I'm shooting blanks. I'm only getting girls out of this and I've got no heir. I've got tons of really great guys around me who could be the heir. I'm going to hand it over to them. But you, you, it just, you know, again, he, it shows, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It shows that he trusted in Elohim to, come through on his end of the bargain, which is exactly the kind of the context of this entire chapter. And that's the saving faith that, um, that Paul talks about that we, all of us sitting here, like, we don't know how this is all going to work out. We don't know how our own lives are going to work out. We don't know how new Jerusalem's coming down. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how all this is coming to a conclusion. It seems really dark right now. We're surrounded by darkness, but we believe, um, against, uh, against hope, believe in hope that Yahushua, our high priest, is going to come through on his end. And again, that's what we see exemplified here. Handing it back to you, Michael. 
That was great stuff. Um, uh, we messaged you in the chat to reference that book that you found, The Seed of Satan, or The, the Serpent, and then what you're saying about Christians and the entitlements. Wow. Very sad. Um, so number five for me is my longest. So we'll start there. So <clears throat> KGV says, and he brought him forth abroad and said, now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, so shall thy seed be. So that word toward heaven, I found two cross references based on that word that were pretty cool. So Deuteronomy 4 takes the claim of, and beware not to lift up your eyes towards heaven or to heaven. And see the sun and moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them. So, um, Yah tells Abraham to look up towards heaven. Deuteronomy warns you not to, you know, not to follow them or be drawn away and worship them. And we'll get to more of that in a bit. So, but Judges 13, 19. So Manoah took the young goat along with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord. And he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. Same word. That the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on, the, on their faces to the ground. Again, just showing that just because you look towards the stars doesn't mean it's bad, right? It's your, it's your actions towards that. You know, he, he created everything, right? Um, don't be drawn away for them. Look what happened with Manoah. Um, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Um, what the flame went up from the altar toward heaven. Um, and also mentioned the rock. Yeshua was also the, our rock as well. Um, okay, so, you know, every book we read, I, at least one chapter I try to link it to the Maseroth. This was no different. So, because um, we have a Maseroth room that it's pretty dusty. Um, the Maseroth is a biblical Hebrew word found in the book of Job 38-32. And literally meaning constellations, while others interpret the word as garland of crowns. But in its context, it's that of astronomical constellations and is often interpreted as a term for zodiac. So check this out. So this is just that verse, Job 3832. So the English standard, can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Marine, pretty similar, but it says cubs. Look at that, King James. Canest thou bring forth the Maseroth in its season? Or canest thou guide Arcturus with his sons? I will get more on Arcturus in a bit. Um, and then the New American just goes total left field. Can you bring out a constellation in its seasons and guide the bear with her satellites? What are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here with her satellites? Um, okay. Uh, but then look at this. Wyclef version. So I brought up Wyclef in the wisdom study because it mentioned the 12 fruits of the spirit it was the only one look what Wyclef did with this one whether thou bringest forth lucifer that is the day star in his time and makest the even star to rise upon the sons of the earth bringest thou forth mazaloth in its time that is the stars and its constellations or makest arcturus rise upon the sons of the earth there's your there's another lucifer passage what do you guys make about that to do more research on the Wyclef Bible, but that's number two of very interesting things I found from the Wyclef version. Okay, so Arcturusk. Arcturusk. Intersatellites, exactly. Um, so it's the, in this, obviously, Wikipedia don't, you know, but I thought that was interesting. Look at the distance from the Earth. So it's the brightest star in the northern constellation of Boots. 
And then it goes like this. Of course, 36.666 light years away. Got to get that 666 in there. Um, Arcturusk. Okay, so remember, remember the Deuteronomy passage earlier regarding worshiping these things. The occult definitely do that, right? But you know, I showed earlier that Abraham's Yah told Abraham to look toward heaven. Judges verse was a good verse towards heaven, but there's also the negative verse, um, and you can worship these things, and the occult definitely do that, and definitely throw in their six six six. So there's another verse that talks about the Maseroth too in Second Kings, and I just want to show you guys that. Um, and it's it's about worshiping, so it goes with the negative. So Aramaic. Um, or setting incense for Baal and for the sun and for the moon and the stars. Brent and Septuagint says, and they burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the Maseroth. Again, you can burn it, you can sacrifice, you can worship these gods up there. You know, Enoch has an interesting take on those stars. Um, and the 12 signs. So, you know, there's obviously two different things. You can worship them or good things can come out of it. Um, okay, so... I don't know how I got onto this, but <laughs> not exactly Maseroth. Um, so the term Mazel Tov, we, we all know what that is. Jewish phrase used to express congratulations for a happy or significant occasion or event. That word Mazel comes from the biblical Hebrew Mazal, meaning constellation, astrological sign. Why? Why are they saying that? You know, you know, a lot of people say that that religion. I believe they believe that's the moon. I don't know. I know maybe. Islam is, but um, that's where they get it from. It's from the same root word, from Mazaroth, is Mazel Tov. thought that was interesting. Um, Yasher, so with regards to the Mazaroth talk, you know, I forgot his name, but he was talking in the chats today about, you know, some negative on Yasher. You know, uh, I'm not 100% sure yet, uh, but Yasher 8. I will put it here, I won't read it all, but Mazel Tov. Um, I'm going to read all of it, but that will give you the context. And so I'll start on number two. And when all the wise men, sound familiar? This is about Abraham's birth. And conjurers went out from the house of Terah. They lifted up their eyes towards heaven that night to look at the stars. And they saw, and behold, one very large star coming from the east and ran into the heavens. And he swallowed up the four stars from the four sides of the heaven. And they were astonished. And the sages understood this matter. Um... And then it continues, it continues. Uh, oh, wait, actually, I should read that one. Oh, so this only betokens that the child has been born to Terah this night, who will grow up and be fruitful and multiply and possess all the earth. He and his children forever. He and his seed will slay great kings and inherit the earth. That was their interpretation. So does that sound familiar? Similar to Yeshua. Star of Bethlehem appears in the, the Nativity story in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, where wise men from the east or magi are inspired by the star to travel to Jerusalem. And of course, we know about Herod and killing the babies, and you know they did the same thing to Abraham. So um, I didn't post it, but the rest of Jasher eight tells the story of Nimrod demanding Terah to bring newborn Abraham to kill him, just like Herod with Yeshua. Terah brings a servant's child instead, and Nimrod kills him by dashing his head. Then Terah takes Abram, his wife, and his nurse, and hides them in a cave. Until Abram is 10 years old. Then Abram went to live with Noah for 39 years, leaving when he was 50. Again, Yasher, but interesting story. Like Yasher, some might say it's rabbinic. It's saying the same thing, kind of like Yeshua. 
Yeshua story. I thought that was cool. Um, so also in this verse, in Genesis 15.5, God promised Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. I'm not going to read all this, but I'm going to post it. These are just other examples of being promised as numerous as the stars of heaven. So Abraham's descendants, Isaac, God reminded Isaac that he had promised Abraham. Jacob reminded God that he had promised Jacob's descendants. Moses, um, Moses reported that God had multiplied the Israelites until, until they are as numerous as the stars, and so on and so on. Just some examples, again, of God's promise to this bloodline. Um, I'm going to do number six, and then hand off to Noah real quick. And he believed in the Lord and counted to him for righteousness. And Noel hit on that with all the good Paul stuff. Um, Palestinian says, and he believed in the Lord and had faith in the memra, or word of the Lord. And he reckoned to it, country, a little country accent there, to him for righteousness, because he parlayed not before him with words. So, one of my favorite words in the Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew expert, but uh, emunah. So, the Hebrew word emunah, often rendered as faith in many English translations, comes from the root word amen, which means to rest securely or rely upon, where we get also the word amen. A root occurs for the first time in Torah in connection with Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and he regarded to him as righteousness. Praise yeah. um, Still have a decent amount left, but I'll hand it back off to Mel. Yeah, so the Genesis 15, 6 there, in the Aramaic Targum, it, it actually adds the word of Yahuwah there, which I love. So this is what it says in the Masoretic, 15, 6. And he believed in Yahuwah, and he counted it to him for righteousness. The LXX says pretty much the same thing. And Abram believed in Elohim, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But then the Aramaic Targum says, and he believed in Yahuwah and had faith in the word of Yahuwah. And what you know, we saw the interchange there of the two words in uh in verse verse and it was almost it was a bit of a giveaway because it it's time and again in the targum there's this idea that the the word it's it's different than just him giving his yahuwah giving his a promise or his decree that's not what the word means here you can't argue that it's 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 basically the word itself that is going to go through to the end, right? And uphold his end of the bargain. And it's so instrumental in this very chapter when we see the covenant being cut, uh, that Yahuwah personally cuts the covenant. And um, so basically they all three agree. Genesis 15, 6 of the Masoretic, the LXX, and the Arabic Targum, that belief is a virtue. But even more so, it is an imputing of righteousness, at least in Elohim's eyes. Um, and difficult to you know really argue against that fact. And we saw in our Roman study that righteousness is conforming to the standard. Um, and so that, that's something that, again, it's really twisted and contorted in Christianity. They, their ideas of conforming to the standard is that, um, that the Father, we can kind of act however we want. Now, not all denominations will say that, but this is, seems to be the general understanding that you get see out there in Christianity today just it's 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 pretty uh grim that it's really it all comes down to everything they'll say that Jesus did um that you know that we basically can kind of live our lives how we want and that doesn't really matter because Jesus did it all but 
no, it's 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 conform being declared righteous is conforming to a a standard. It's being you know, and obviously Yahushua High Priest, he has done the sacrifice for us. But um, oh man, I'm talking to myself. But Abraham again against hope believed in hope, right? And it was it was I'm really struggling here right now, but um we, we see him again really trying to work out how he can act in this world that would represent the world to come. All right. They, they go hand in hand. We see that in his thought process. All right. Now this is what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 33. This ends the Torah portions. And we just read this this morning. I really like this. It said this, uh, this, this ties in really well with uh, Genesis 15, six of the Targum. Happy are you, O Yasharel, who of all the nations are like you, a people saved in the name of the word of Yahuwah. And then again, it says, he is the shield of your help, which we already saw, right? The, the, our salvation, Yeshua, is our shield and his sword, the strength of your excellency. And your enemies shall be found liars against you from terror, and you shall tread upon the necks of their kings. This is, of course, they're getting ready to enter into the land. And so uh, it, it's literally saying that uh, Yahushua the Messiah, the word is going before them. He's going to be their salvation. He's going to be their shield. He will be the one that tread down the enemy for them. Right now, what I really wanted to cover tonight, and I don't, I'm kind of jumping ahead of where Michael's going to be at, um, is Genesis 15 and 11. And I, he probably wants to cover this, but I, I think I'll be covering material that I don't think I'll be um, cutting him down too much here or, or, you know, treading on his material. But this is so instrumental to understanding Acts chapter 10 and Peter's vision. I don't know if anybody caught this while we were reading this. And it says this. Um, let's see. And there came down idolatrous peoples. Let's see, do I have this in the Masoretic? Oh, man, I wish I had this in the Masoretic. Okay. Anyways, this is what it says. And there came down idolatrous peoples, which are like to unclean birds, to steal away the sacrifice of Yasharel. But the righteousness of Abram was a shield over them. Okay, and this is what it says in the Masoretic. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So the, the Masoretic is saying that there were actual birds that came down to, de, to devour the carcass. And you can imagine the scene. Abraham is running to drive them away. Well, the Targum is saying, no, they, they weren't birds. They were idolatrous peoples coming down to try to interrupt the sacrifice, to try to interrupt the covenants. And they were like unclean birds and Abraham drove them away. This is, I think this is so instrumental to understanding Hebrew thinking at this, at this time period when the uh, Targum was put out as well as in Yahushua's own time period. I will remind you again of Peter or Kepha's vision of the animals in Acts chapter 10. I'm not going to read that. I gave a presentation on it two or three months ago where, uh, you know, what, what happens is that people read this and they go, all right, gorilla is on the table. Puppy is on the table. Anything I want to eat, anything that I desire is on the table because Peter had this vision of these animals coming down on these sheets. And he kept saying, you know, no, not me, Lord. I'll, I'll never eat those animals. Well, if you read it carefully, um, Peter actually, def uh, he uh, interprets the vision for us. Nobody likes that part, but he understands that the animals are representation of people. They're not actual animals. 
All right. So again, you're seeing that same sort of um, thought process with Genesis 15, 11. Well, there was, when we were having that discussion, um, there was another great, uh, thank you, Desmond. I'm not sure if he's still in the room tonight. Um, yeah, Desmond's here tonight. And I had made a comment about how the epistle of Barnabas was a lawless uh, text that um, that Barnabas, this Barnabas fellow, this person identifying as Barnabas was doing away with the Torah and just ridiculing it and saying how we didn't have to do it anymore. And this is often used as evidence by church historians to say the Torah was done away with very early on and that we are not to keep it. Well, he had brought up that there was a, a manuscript that was put forward, a, a targum, an interpretation by an individual who um, showed that not to be the case. And he was showing that the, uh, the, the sin is in the translators and the interpreters who are actually, there's a conspiracy really that they're trying to make the early Christians out to be lawless people. And they're purposely translating this wrong. And it's amazing that um, a single, a little word here or there, uh, either inserted or taken out of the text can uh, quickly change the context and the meaning. And I was saying that the epistle of Barnabas, it's, it's, it's just, it's a, it's comedy. It's actually embarrassing that, that uh, Barnabas, this Barnabas fellow would be making a case against the Torah in the way he did by saying that basically it's this, all right. He's saying, uh, follow this uh, because I'm about to read from the corrected version. He was saying, uh, you know, Moses never really meant that you weren't supposed to eat pig. What he really meant was that you're not supposed to be around piggish people. Um, he doesn't really mean that you're not to eat, eat octopus. You're just uh, not to be around people that act like an octopus. And you're, you're like, wait, what? What are you, what are you talking about? That's the that's lamest explanation because, like, clearly, all throughout the Bible, I mean, it's so clear that you are not to eat pig, that you're not to eat shellfish. I mean, it's it it it's hard to mistake that. So if Barnabas is really making that that uh, argument, it's it's laughable. It would be laughable that anyone would believe that. But this is what modern translators, um, like like uh, um, like Lightfoot and some of the others, are putting out there, saying he was he was um, claiming. Well, this is uh, the translation that was done recently um, on the Epistle of Barnabas, and it changes everything. So I'm going to read from chapter 10, and this is the famous chapter in Barnabas where he's talking about the animals. Now, keep in again, this is in context to the. Aramaic Targum, that they were identifying people as animals, as idolatrous people are like unclean birds, right? Now, clearly the writers of the Targum are not saying you can eat unclean birds, but they are also saying, that, yes, there are people that are like unclean birds out there. So this is what Barnabas says. When Moshe said, you will not eat the swine, the eagle, the hawk, the crow, or any fish that has no scales, he had three principles in mind, for at the end he... It enumerates them in Devarim, and that'd be Deuteronomy. I will place before this people my Torah. So this is not Elohim's commandment about um, crunching. Rather, Moshe spoke in the, the Ruach about swine. You will not cleave to piggish people of this sort. When they got uh, full, they forgot the master, and when they are in need, they think of the master. A piggish people. So a piggish people, when they get full, they forget the master. And when they are in need, they think of the master. That would be a piggish people. Like the swine who does not know its master when it eats. When hungry, it cries out. And once it has received, it's quiet again. 
nor will you eat the buzzard, the hawk, the kite, or the crow. He means that you will not cleave to nor be like people of this sort who do not know uh, do not know how to provide for themselves by labor and sweat. But in their iniquity, they seize the property of others. They observe, watching whom they will plunder in their covetousness, while they carry on as though innocent. The same way these birds provide no food for themselves by work, but sitting idly by, seek out how they can eat the meats of others. Some people are likewise destructive on account of their evil works. And you will not eat the lamprey or octopus or the squid. And he means you will not cleave to or become like people of this sort, who are immoral to the end, having already been condemned to death. Even as these accursed fish swim alone in the abyss, not suspended as the others, but dwelling in the muck in the depth of the sea. It's kind of interesting they knew that about octopus. He's, I mean, I mean, who was, you know, who was capable of diving down to observe the octopus back there? I mean, think about that. Obviously, they probably had some tech to, you know, to be able to do that. He says, you will not eat the rabbit. And he means you will not be a pedophile. It actually says a pedophile. I guess rabbits are pedophiles. I, I don't know. but <laughs> Or like such. For the rabbit grows an orifice in the body each year. So it has as many, um, um, I think it says anuses as years. Hmm, interesting. All right. Nor will you eat the hyena, meaning you will not be an effeminate seducer of children. Wow, this is pretty uh, dark. Um, I didn't realize that. So, um, yeah, so don't be like the hyena, uh, meaning you will not be an effeminate, effeminate, like, I guess, like, almost like, um, you know, like a effeminate man, kind of homosexual seducer of children, which we see in libraries across uh, America right now, or a wanton abortive fornicator. Mm, abortive fornicator, or any such person, because the hyena's traits change each year, becoming like a male one year and like a female the next. Nor will you eat the weasel, and with good reason, you will not be like those who hear about, uh, who do forbidden and immoral acts in their mouths, for these creatures gush forth into their mouths. So Moshe spoke of these three teachings about food in a spiritual sense. All right. Now, Pay attention to this. But the people, in accordance with the lust of their flesh, receive them as being only about eating. Now, what translators will do is they will take that out and they will say that Barnabas is uh, claiming that the people misread Moshe, Moshe to say they were about eating when it should have been just purely spiritual. No, and he's saying, no, where they got it wrong was that they thought it was only about eating and not about the spiritual, that there's a spiritual sense that, you know, they thought that, well, we're not going to eat a pig, but we can still be a piggish people, you know? Uh, I mean, he's claiming here that, like, uh, effeminate seducers of children, uh, pedophiles, like, where, where is this language is so familiar to us. And there's these people he, he's pointing out saying they think they're keeping the Torah by not eating these certain foods, but then they you know, act like a pedophile. So, ouch. Uh, tell us what you really think, Barnabas. Uh, so Moshe spoke of these three teachings about food in a spiritual sense, but the people in accordance with the lust of their flesh receive them as being only about eating. Uh, even David receives knowledge of these same three teachings. He says in like manner, blessed is the one who has not gone into the council chamber of the irreverence, uh, even as fish make their way in darkness into the depths, and has not stood in the way of sinners, 
even as those who pretend to fear Yahuwah sin like swine. Um, that's kind of interesting. There's a lot of people who pretend to fear him, but they just openly sin or privately sin. And has not sat in the seat of the destructive, even as do the perching birds looking out for booty. But in the end, you do indeed have a complete commandment covering food. For Moshe said, eat everything that is cloven-footed and choose the cud. What does he mean? The cruncher takes food from the muncher and becoming dependent upon him for food, acts as though he were glad. See how well Moshe discerns the commandment. He means cleave to those who fear Yahuwah, who walk in his commandments, who have received them into their hearts. Cleave to those who discuss Yahuwah's commandments and observe them. So this is what we should be doing, guys. We should, uh, we ourselves should be cleaving to those who walk his commandments and who spend their time discussing them. And that, I know that's hard to do. I mean, I know that in our lives we are constantly looking for, it is so hard to find anybody who even wants to talk about the Bible. I can't find Christians in my neighborhood or anywhere around here who just even wants to talk about the Bible. You start talking about it and they're just like, that's weird. This isn't church. Why do you want to talk about that? I have a, a, a guy down the road who's a pastor who you can't get the guy to talk about the Bible. Cleave to those who know that practicing them is a work of gladness. Cleave to them who meditate on the word of Yahuwah. And again, what is the meaning of with cloven hoof? It means that the one who cleaves to righteousness walks in this world, yet cleaves to the expectation of the set-apart age to follow. Consider how well Moshe has made this Torah. How is it possible for anyone to recognize or understand these things? No matter. We speak them just as Yahuwah willed because we have correctly understood his commandments. For this cause, he circumcised our ears and our hearts so we might appreciate them all. So what he's saying is that um, you know, Barnabas is not doing away with circumcision. He's not doing away with uh, clean and unclean eating. He's saying that if we have a circumcised heart, uh, if Yahuwah has truly circumcised us, then we will understand that there is a spiritual significance well beyond the physical act that we are to, you know, actually think about the Torah. We're to walk out the Torah and we're to surround ourselves with people who do the same and not unclean people. All right. So that's uh, just a really interesting observation there that I read in Genesis. Back to you, Michael. I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So where am I? Where am I? Where am I? I was getting ahead, reading ahead. I am on number eight. So KGV says, and he said, Lord God, where shall, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? So commentary was talking about this as Abraham was not complaining, but he asked God, through what merit would he inherit the land? And as we will read on, God replied that Abraham and his descendants would merit the land through the atoning sacrifices that Yah would institute for Abraham's descendants, as indicated by the next verse, in which God said, take me a heifer of three years old. And so, number nine says, and he said unto them, take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Palestinian says, and he said, bring me oblations, and offer before me a heifer of three years, a goat of three years, a ram of three years, a dove, and a young a pigeon. So, we're studying that word heifer. thought it was interesting. So, Jeremiah 46 says, make your baggage ready for exile, daughter living in Egypt. For Memphis will become a desolation. It will be destroyed and deprived of its inhabitants. Egypt is a pretty heifer. 
And then Hosea, Hosea 10 says, number 11, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh. But I will come over her fair neck with a yoke. I will harness Ephraim. Judah will plow. Jacob will harrow for himself. So with a view to righteousness. So I just thought it was interesting that he's, you know, he's taking a heifer in this kind of covenantual sacrifice. And then Egypt was a heifer. Ephraim was a heifer. Um, so there was a midrash deduced that Yah showed Abraham three kinds of bullocks, three kinds of goats, three kinds of rams that Abraham's descendants would need to sacrifice. You guys think about this. Um, three kinds of bullets, and they give verses. The three kinds of bullets were the bullocks in Leviticus 16, where the Israelites were sacrificed on the Day of Atonement. Um, the bullock for unwitting transgression of the law, Leviticus 4, and then the heifer whose neck would require the Israelites to break in Deuteronomy. Three kind of goats that they would sacrifice on festivals during the new moon or Rosh Kodesh. And for an individual to bring Leviticus 4 for unknown sin again. Three kind of rams, guilt offering of certain obligations, guilt offering of doubt, and for a lamb to be brought by an individual. I think it's true, but that, that was interesting. Um, and so also, so, you know, there's similarities between this passage and then Leviticus, Leviticus 1. So they both had herd creatures and a heifer. They both had flock creatures, sheep goats, and a female goat and ram. They both had turtle doves, pigeons, turtle doves, and young birds. I just thought it was interesting that this is Abraham's covenant, and he's still doing somewhat of a sacrifice, um, kind of like foreshadowing uh, the Levitical, and then, yeah. Um, okay, number 10, it says, And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the other. But the, the birds divided he not. And so this was cool. Um, let's see. So in ancient Near East royal land grant treaties, I've talked about those, uh, the grant treaties uh, a few episodes ago. This type of ritual was done to seal the promises made. Through this blood covenant, Yah was conforming primarily three promises he made to Abraham. The promise of heirs of land and blessings. A blood covenant commu communicated a self-maledictory oath. The parties involved would walk the path between the slaughtered animals to say, May this be done to me if I do not keep my oath. And this wasn't the first time. There was another type of covenant like this in Jeremiah 34. Um, this was not good. Um, so, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release, each one to his brother and each to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to the plague, and to the famine. I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give the people who have violated my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of thy covenant, which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. So what do you guys make about that? So Yah wasn't involved. It's almost like they knew what happened with Abraham, and they tried to force a covenant, and Yah wasn't a part of it. So I thought that was interesting in Jeremiah. Same, same kind of thing, but they did it in their own eyes. Because um, they weren't obedient. They violated the covenant. Um, some more on this covenant process. This was decent. The parties would take an animal, cut it in half down the middle, and split it in two. The two bloody halves would be separated and laid aside, after which each party would walk through the two halves. This ceremony represents each party giving up his rights to his own life, dying to self and beginning a new walk with one's new covenant partner unto death. 
Each half of the animal represents one of the covenant parties. And by walking through the middle, each party was saying, God, do so to me if I ever break this covenant. Just split me right down the middle. Feed me to vultures. What do you guys make about that? Um, I will do... This will be my last one, and I'll hand it to Noel, number 11. Actually, I'll do 11 and 12. So 11 says, And when the fowls came, this is what... Um, Noel was talking about with Peter's vision. I'm not going to go there, so that was good that he did that. <coughs> and when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so Jerusalem Targum. I'm going with Jerusalem this time. It was a little bit different. Um, and when the birds descended, they came not nigh the divisions. Those birds are unclean fowl, and those unclean fowl are the kingdoms of the earth, which are worshiper of idols, and which counsel evil counsels against the sons of Israel. But the integrity of the righteous, Abram, hindered them. Okay, so what does Jubilees have to say about this? What's that? Linen talk in there. I love that. Um, so, and the seed time came for the sowing of the seed upon the land. And they all went forth together to protect their seed against the ravens. And Abram went forth with those that went. And the child was a lad 14 years cloud of ravens came to devour the seed and abram ran to meet them before they settled on the ground and cried to them before they settled to devour the seed and said descend not return to the place when seed came and the ravens proceeded to turn back and he caused the cloud of ravens to turn back that day 70 times and all the ravens throughout all the land where abram was there settled there so much as one and all who were with him throughout all the land, saw him cry out, and all the ravens turned back, and his name became great in the land of Chaldees. So KGV just says, and when the fowls came down, the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This real simple one sentence. You get jubilees, you get this amazing story about what Abram did. Good job. Uh, last thing, and I'll hand it off to Noel. KGV says on number 12, and when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Uh, Jerusalem Targum. So I, I'm doing the Jerusalem again. It was a little bit different. And when the sun was going to sl- set, sleep profound and sweet fell upon Abram. And behold, Abram saw four kingdoms which should arise to bring his sons into subjection and terror. The greatness of darkness fell upon him. Terror, that is Babel. Darkness, that is in, that is media. Interesting word. Greatness, that is Greece. Fell, that is Edom, Rome. That fourth kingdom, which is to fall and never to rise again forever and ever. I don't know what to make about that. Jerusalem Targum. Um, some so commentary taught that when prophets prophesied, their limbs trembled, their physical powers became weak, they lost control of their senses, and thus their minds became free to comprehend what they saw. Again, just commentary, just giving you more additional info. I don't have much left, but I'll hand off to Noel, and then I'll finish on my, my next turn. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the the fourth kingdom, which you know the the, Jeru- the Jerusalem says Edom, and uh, we see that over and over again. And I've shown that the Aramaic Targum really stresses that Rome, interestingly enough, is Edom, and they're um, I see it as that they're kind of pulling back the curtain and they're saying this is who's really running the show is Edom. And so they, they see it as kind of the big, uh, the kind of the climax, you know, the, the, the end of history that it's, you know, 
uh, Greece, uh, Babel, these different um, and these different empires, they're, it's not really as much of a family struggle. Um, but we see that Rome, if if they are truly Edom, and I, I've done some genealogy on that, and what, you know the claims that the, the early um, kings of Rome, the early uh, Caesars, were actually uh, Edomites. Um, that you know they they were there was a more of a spiritual it was a it was a different type of spiritual control over um, Yehuda as were the others right because it was a, a family struggle so I, I found this kind of I was thinking about this and of the the four names mentioned here so we see Babel Madai Jevon which is uh, the Greeks and Ferris now. Madai is one of the is a son of Yapeth and one of the sixteen grandsons of Noah in the book of Genesis, and we know that they are the Persians or the Iranians. Uh, Yavan was the fourth son of Noah's son uh, Yapeth, so J uh, one of Noah's grandsons, uh, Yapeth's fourth son, and those became the Greeks. But then we see Edom, and you know that that's kind of related there. I was trying to find any idea on Babel. Now we know that's Babylon, obviously the first one, but was, I was curious if there was an actual uh, name of a child named Babel. I couldn't find it. If there is, forgive me, maybe it's out there, but I was thinking that because all the others uh, seem to be attributed to an actual person. Um, and there, let's see, what else do we have here? This, this one was interesting. So oh, again, though, that Going back to the the birds being related to people and idolatry, and and it's kind of interesting because then we see these four kingdoms brought in, and it seems like the whole idea of these kingdoms is that they're they're like the tares, and they're coming in and trying to get it's it's all a, a test for Yah's people for Abraham's children. Are you going to be obedient to the Father and believe in his word? Or are you going to take part in the idolatry of these kingdoms? Because these are the the bird, the unclean birds are coming in and trying to disrupt the covenant, right? And that's what we're seeing in this dream. It's the, the birds that keep coming back and coming back and coming back. And, and this is a test. Will you be obedient? Will you give in to idolatry or will you serve uh, the Father? Uh, let's see here. And this was kind of interesting in in Genesis fifteen fourteen. Oh, I'll go ahead and say this yet. Uh, say this. It, it says in Genesis fifteen thirteen, I had to read this several times. I, it says, and he said to Abram, "This is Yahuwah speaking. Knowing thou must know that thy son shall dwell in a land not their own." Uh, now we know that they went to Babylon. We know that Israel dispersed. I think this is specifically talking about Egypt. Uh, and it says, because thou has not believed, and they will be, they will subjugate and afflict them for four hundred years. Well, wait a second, I, I'm so confused by that. Maybe you guys can help spell this out because Abraham did believe, and because he did believe, it was accredited to him as righteousness. The same chapter says this. I originally read this and thought maybe the people after him didn't believe, and they, you know, they were afflicted, and we see that with the wilderness generation, they clearly didn't believe, and leading up to it. I was a little confused by that. How is it that Abraham didn't believe? That's like the only passage that I've so far seen that would uh, insinuate that. So I'll let you guys kind of figure that out. Maybe we can discuss that. Uh, but in Genesis 15, 14, 
it says that there would be 250 plagues. Um, and also that the people whom thou shalt serve, I will judge with 250 plagues. Now, oh, and afterwards they shall go forth into liberty with great riches. Again, this must be Egypt being spoken about because um, they didn't leave Babylon with great riches. Um, they, When Israel dispersed, they never went anywhere with great riches. Uh, we know that they looted Egypt and they left that with great riches. So it's kind of interesting to hear that there are 250 plagues. I don't, again, I don't know what all that means. In the book of Jasher, it we know that, of course, there were 10 plagues. In the book of Jasher, they have added plagues, one of which is a very trippy creature that comes out of the Nile. And like it's like this giant, and it, it, like, it like lifts up the rooftops and reaches in and grabs people. And they're all shrieking. It sounds like a, a horror film. Um, I, I'll leave that up to you guys to discuss, uh, discuss that as well. I'm going to close on this, and then I'll, I'll give Michael the closing commentary. In Genesis 15, 16, we see that uh, in the fourth generation of thy sons, they will return hither to inherit. So the, you know, the children of Israel will you'll come back and get the land because the guilt of the Amorite is not yet complete. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the Amorite, of course, are the Amorites. And so it seems to be that that there's two things going on like you who is like okay you're not gonna they're not gonna get the land right away because of like this lack of belief they're gonna go down to egypt but also they're not getting the land right away because the amorites who are here in the lands their sins have not uh the guilt of their sins has not reached its fullness yet i'm not ready to punish them yet that's kind of interesting how that works and now in the earliest sumerian texts all western lands beyond the euphrates river including the modern uh, Levants, uh, were known as the land of the Amorites. Um, so that's kind of interesting. The term Amorites is used in the Bible to, uh, I'm getting this right here from Wikipedia. The term Amorites is used in the Bible to refer to certain highland mountaineers who inhabited the land of Canaan, described in Genesis as descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. So it's the land of Canaan, but it's also the land of the Amorites. They, all, they are described as a powerful people of great stature, like the heights of the cedars, according to Amos 2.9, who had occupied the land east and west of the Jordan. Remember now, they're, they're west of the Euphrates, so the Amorites are, are a mountainous people all through that region. The height and strength mentioned in Amos, according to, this is a story from Wikipedia, has led some Christian scholars, including Orville J. Navi who wrote uh, the Navi's topical Bible to refer to the Amorites as giants. Now, part of that, of course, is what we read in Deuteronomy, that the Amorite king was none other than Og. And we went, Michael had some great commentary to say on Og two or three weeks ago, and how he was like the king of the, uh, the, the netherworld, and um, he seems to be associated with Baal, and I'll hopefully be covering a paper on that, um, doing some incredible research on this guy and how there was much more to Og than meets the eye than just physicality. There seemed to be something very spiritual going on about him. Uh, but anyways, Og himself was the Amorite king. And remember, we read how, according to the Aramaic Targum, Og was specifically kept alive. He was not destroyed because... Um, Yahuwah personally wanted to keep him alive to see uh, his promises come in with the children of Israel and, and Moses, you know, personally killed Og. Um, anyways, and he was described as the last remnant of the Rephaim, which was also the Amorites. All right. The leader of the Amorites. 
And I'm just going to end on this right here. I found this interesting in verse 17. And when the sun had set, there was darkness. And behold, Abram saw, now the, the Masoretic, I'll read this first. And it came to pass that when the sun went down in the Masoretic, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those two pieces. Well, the Eric Targum basically takes it up a notch and says that Abram, he didn't see a smoking furnace. He saw Gehenna ascending, smoke with flaming coals and burning flakes of fire, wherewith the wicked are to be judged. And behold, he passed between those divisions. He being capitalized here, um, I'm taking it to be the word of Yahuwah. And I believe that the, the covenant was always cut with the word of Yahuwah, that he was the one that was going to fulfill his end of it. He was going to die, you know, come and die. He was going to be the final sacrifice. Um, so what struck me here was that we're going to read this part in a few weeks in Genesis 19, 28. The same language is used. And this is what it says. Uh, when Abraham woke up in the morning, he had had the conversation with the angel. He was pleading to save Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it, it all goes down in the night. Lot barely escapes at sunrise. It, it goes up in flames. And it says, and he, Abram, or Abraham, looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the lands of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And that seems to be the picture they're describing um, uh, Gehenna, you know, the, the, the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. And, um, you know, I've always stated that from a, from a Hebrew perspective, that, um, that, you could say the same thing to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were they were not tormented for an eternity. They were killed, uh, probably instantaneous. Though some may have uh, you know suffered a little bit longer in the flames, but the smoke itself was the picture that the smoke rises forever and ever. It was a picture of their torment rising forever and ever. And I just thought that was a little interesting comparison there between the Aramaic Targum and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Michael. That's the end of my commentary for the night. All right, great stuff. Get ready, guys. I don't have much, and then we can open it up. Uh, where am I going? Number 13. So, <clears throat> last, I think, last word study for the night. And uh, and he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. So that was a prophecy, right? So, but shape, and shall serve them is the word I'm looking for. So, Deuteronomy 31, now then write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. And when I bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they eat and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. So that's pretty interesting. Um, he's giving them to the land that they were promised, and they still turned to other gods and served them. Um, prophetic with Israel. And then I thought it was interesting that, you know, Nazaritic says they shall afflict them 400 years. Jasher didn't say that. Uh, Jasher 81 says, And the children of Israel journey. Oh, I'll start on number two. Also, a mixed multitude went up with them, and flocks and herds, even much cattle. And the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in the land of Egypt in hard labor was 210 years. At the end of 210 years, the Lord brought forth the children of Israel from Egypt. So 
there's a disparity there. I don't know what to make of that. I, I don't know what the Septuagint says. I know there's a big debate on how long they were in in Egypt. But yeah. Um, number 14 says, I will... Actually, yeah, I'm just going to do Palestinian. And also that people whom shall serve, I will judge with 250 plagues. And afterward, they shall go forth into liberty with great riches. So... Numbers guy, I have to do the 250 examples. Um, Exodus, uh, there was 250 of fragrant cane. Um, 250, let's see, princes of the congregation in Numbers. Number 16 has three of them. So um, Yahweh had 250 censors, um, 250 men who offered incense. And finally, Ezekiel. Um, the city had 250, it looks like. So I thought that was cool. What do you guys make about that? The 250 that the Targum talks about. I will judge with 250 plagues. And then you see all these 250s as well. Uh, two more. So number 18, Palestinian says, In that day the Lord ordained a covenant with Abram that he would not judge therein his sons, but he would deliver them from the kingdom, saying, To thy sons will I give this land from Nilos of Mitzrayim unto the great river the river Ferath, so or Euphrates in the KGV. So commentary said that Genesis fifteen eighteen, Deuteronomy one seven, Joshua one four, call the Euphrates the great river because it encompasses the land of Israel. They notated that at the creation of the world, the Euphrates was not designated great, you know, with the four rivers, but it is called great because it encompasses the land of Israel, which Deuteronomy four seven calls a great nation. But that was interesting. It wasn't mentioned wasn't mentioned as great in Genesis, but then or earlier on in Genesis, but now it is. <coughs> um, and finally, real quick, uh, the twenty one, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and then Jerusalem Targum literally just says, and the sons of the east. And we've talked about it multiple times in the Targum and this Genesis that if you're going east, you're walking away from the covenant. And so I thought how the Jerusalem program just straight out says it. They just went east. They're the sons of the east. I want to be that. So I'll end it there. That's all I have for 15. Hope you guys enjoyed both Nolan and us. And we'll open it up, I guess. Yep. Class is dismissed. Thank you guys for sitting there through, I guess it's been three hours now of presentations. So thank you, everyone. It seems like it was a lively discussion tonight about wool and. Um, what do you yeah? What are you guys' thoughts to what um, Michael and I were talking about, and anything on the kills the deck, anything on Genesis fifteen, or even if you you know mud fossils, if you have time to think about good, it. Good, good presentation, guys. I've got a few things. Um, no, when you said the you, what seems to be discrepancy between, um, you know. Because you didn't believe Abraham, your children, for 400 years. Uh, another thing is they weren't there for 400 years. That That's interesting. But the Bible verse, I want to say it's in James, but I could be completely wrong. You know, where it says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You know, so it could be that school of thought where every every time this thought came to Abraham, you know, how many times a day that Yah had promised him a son. And he doesn't have one, you know. Did he believe every single time? Probably not, you know. Um, 
so it could be said in circumstances he did not believe but overall he did you know and it's kind of a difference in mentality between the greek and the hebrews uh where greek is you know more like michael and numbers and statistics and and that type of thing and the hebrews more i i define it as romance where it's more ideology and symbology um you know so I don't know if that's part of it, but that that's my thought. And then also totally agree on the the salvation in, in our uh, as far as Christianity's view. Uh, and I don't consider myself a Christian, but uh, the idea that um, you know, um, how do I want to say it? We should be more concerned about us being able to obtain salvation than that it's you know this idea that salvation is a free gift like is it a gift yes but is it free well technically no because it costs you everything to obtain if we're not interested in creating a relationship with the father now why do we have the idea to even think that we're going to be in an eternal relationship with him those are my thoughts. Mic drop. Yeah, those are some excellent thoughts, and um, and so I, I, to to go over what you said, I, I think what you stated about Abraham is probably spot on. I mean, Abraham was a dude; he was a real human, and I, I can only imagine that he really. There were probably some days that went by where he's like, you know, I mean, we saw that in that chapter where he's like. Uh, you know, this isn't really working out. Um, so I'm going to hand over the keys of the kingdom to Eliezer. And um, so that could have been in that moment where, you know, Abraham's trying to kind of work it out on his own instead of letting Elohim do it. So that, that was a really interesting point on that. On the 400 years, that's a great observation. Um, the it makes me wonder with, you know, some of the things with the, with the translations, because this is a targum of a targum. It's, you know that the, the Aramaic is a targum of the Hebrew, uh, but then it's a English target, English translation of a translation, and and so we we've run into this problem before on numerous different things. And even I said that the the two usages of the word is not a very good translation because it should just be the word because it literally is the word, uh, but then the other one should be like it just should say my edict. Why does it say my word? It should say my edict, my law, or whatever. Um, and so um, it makes me wonder about the 400 years, because this is something we've, you know, a lot of people will discuss. And there, there were, you know, that many years, but clearly they weren't in slavery for that long. I mean, it was many, many years, um, even after getting into Egypt, that they became slaves. And, um, and so, you know, Moshe showed up. And interestingly enough, uh, if you read Jasher, the Levites never actually ended up in slavery. People don't think about this. but. Um, everybody who all the Israelites who were slaves, they had they had to give their consent to Pharaoh to become slaves. And the Levites never did. This is why when Moshe showed up in Egypt, you notice Pharaoh never said, Hey, get to work. Well, he was a Levite. He he wasn't a slave. So Moshe wasn't coming to free the Levites because they were already free. Most people don't put that together. Uh, Aaron as well. He wasn't out there working in the fields. He was a Levite. And it's just like that today, that where we give our consent to be uh, slaves. And uh, the last thing you said was spot on, too, with um, 
uh, our salvation and you know the free gift and all that. And it, it, it's really hard to have a conversation with Christians on this because almost everyone I talk to, they're like, as soon as I talk about his instructions and in righteous living, however I phrase it, sometimes I'll say Torah, sometimes I'll say the law, sometimes I'll say instructions in righteous living. I'll try all these different, you know, these words on people. And as soon as their their alarm bells go off that, you know, he's talking about works-based religion, they'll they'll be um they'll be like, oh, but but Jesus, he's our salvation. And you know, and it, I'm like, well, what does that mean? What, what do you mean he's your salvation? You know, they 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 can't really take it beyond. They're just trained to think, uh, well, he he did everything for us, so we don't have to do anything. That's all. That's all that means to them, and uh, that's clearly like no reading of this of the Bible should ever bring anyone to that conclusion. But it's just how people are trained with like these rose rose shade uh, shaped oh no shaded glasses to read scripture. So good stuff. I posted that Jasher chapter. It's awesome. I recommend reading it, Jasher 65. And then I quoted these four verses. Then look at number 34. And the Egyptians did not direct their attention to make the children of Levi work afterward, since they had not been with their brethren at the beginning. Therefore, the Egyptians left them alone. Amazing. But I would read that whole chapter. It's awesome. <clears throat> Um, there is an explanation for the 400 years given in the legends of the Jews, and I can't remember what it is, unfortunately. It, it's, But it dates back to a certain thing that happened, I think, with maybe Abraham. Um, and I, It was from the time of something till, till they left, and I can't remember what that first event was, but I'll, I'll see if I can't look it up. Yeah, the 400 years was kind of a, it was almost like a generic phrase that, that referred from Abraham to Moshe le leading them out. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, my understanding is that not even the translators of scripture back then and stuff would have thought that they were actually in slavery for 400 years. But, um, but it was just, it was a time frame from the covenant to their, to their deliverance. So I had um, a few comments and this was, I was really fascinated by the Melchizedek part. I'm always, I've been studying that recently, but um, I made some notes here, but the first comment was, um, goes right along with kind of what we were talking about in the chat too, about the frequency of the garments and linen and stuff. But um, where um, the part with Noah's brother, I believe his name was Nur and his wife, when he put her, they put her in the black garments. Um, and you, you kind of made a comment of that, Noel. It made me think of, um, so I read that there was this study done by a doctor about the frequency of garments and how, um, like was mentioned in the, in the chat, linen is 5,000 frequency and wool is 5,000 frequency, but they cancel each other out. And then, you know, cotton has, a, I think it was like 100 or something like that. And for our bodies to be healthy, I think it has to be like the higher the frequency, the better, but anything less than, I can't remember the exact number, it was 100, 200 starts giving us a negative um, health kind of, um, like it starts affecting our health negatively. Well, one other thing that I saw there, a comment from from what the doctor's study was, and I can try to find this and share it with the group so you guys can all see it, but um, was that anything with the color black, any fabric, didn't matter, had a zero frequency, which I thought was interesting. I had I'd seen other frequency studies, but that was the first time I heard that. So obviously, you know, it's something, I don't really know how we would even test that, but it's just kind of stuck with me. And 
I've actually tried to stop wearing black since. Like even I have black linen things, but that's what made me think of when I when I um heard your comment about that they put her in black and then they ended up changing her. You know, and I, I think a lot of times in modern society, we think they were, you know, they didn't know much back then. But I think it's the opposite where they were much more advanced and, um, you know, knew much more than we do now. So perhaps that's true. And perhaps they knew that and putting her in a zero frequency fabric maybe was because she did something that they thought was shameful, perhaps. And then they changed her out of it when they realized otherwise, just kind of um, a thought. There and then I just, you know, to make a comment on today, you know, when people are mourning, they wear black. So I don't know. I find that kind of interesting. But that was one note. Another note I had was um, about Melkid Sedek. So I know I think it was Michael that pointed this out, um, that Melki Sedek actually means my king is righteous, which is very true. And it's very interesting because um, I've studied that and I've looked up, you know, what does it mean? And there's been kind of maybe this cognitive dissonance in my mind. Just I, I've read that means king and righteousness. And I, did, I, I speak Arabic, actually, and I've studied Hebrew as well. And there's actually a lot of similarities with the languages, just kind of the format for the grammar and, and a lot of the rules. And anything with an E at like Melki is like my Melik, like my king. It makes it possessive. So that's true. And for some reason, I just never really put that together until, until um, Michael pointed that out. But that is, that's correct. And that's actually very interesting. I found that interesting. And then um, with the order of Melki Tzedek, um, I think it was in, I think um, Zen has the book Order of the Ancients. And there's one writing in there, the Order of Elijah the Prophet. Um, and I think it pinned Elijah as a Melchizedek as well. And um, in, in that book, Order of Elijah the Prophet was like he was giving instructions to Elisha, you know, that that what to do after, you know, his, his going, because he was kind of passing that torch of Melchizedek onto Elisha. And something I found interesting there, and I want to kind of study this out, who were the lines, who were the Melchizedek lines going down to Yahusha? Because I think you mentioned um, in one of the readings tonight, somebody mentioned that there were 12. Um, but anyway, so it said, so Elijah, one of the things he mentioned in that writing is that he's giving the keys to Elisha, but not all of them, that he was taking part of the keys back up to, you know, paradise or wherever he was going to be brought back at the end of times, which I thought was um, was really interesting. So there was that note. Another note I had was, um, I think it was Michael who pointed out in Luke 22, 15 through 20, where Yahusha said, I will not drink of this cup again um, until, until a kingdom. And, and I agree. I think that does sound like a Nazarite. I've, I've thought that too. So I, I kind of wanted to just highlight that and think, just agree with that. I thought that was interesting. And then my last and final, and I'm, I'm talking a lot of different things, but my last and final note I had here was about Genesis 15, 11. Um, and I found this one interesting because I've, I've read this before. And the first thing it made me think of when I read it was Matthew 24 um, and it's verse 28. And this was where um, Yahusha was giving instructions. I know, Noel, you've done a thorough study on Matthew 24 and kind of lined it up with Revelation. But I've always wondered about the, um, and let me find it. I lost my page here for a second. I'm looking at the Hebrew gospel. But um, this is the part where he's telling them, you know, they're going to tell you, um, you know, come over here. He's in the wilderness or whatnot. But when they do that, don't don't want to believe them. Um, and let me find that verse. It says, 
Um, therefore, if a man will say to you that he is in the wilderness, do not want to go. And if a man will say to you, he is in the cave, and this is obviously referring to himself, you know, his, his returning. He says, do not be willing to believe it for just like the lightning, which goes out from the east and is seen as far as the west, just so will the coming of the son of Eloah be. And then here's verse 28. It says, and in whatever place the body will be, there will the vultures gather together. And I had read that before and just always wondered, like, what is he talking about? What does he mean where the place the body will be that the vultures will gather together? And it always kind of just I didn't know what he was referencing. I didn't know what he's talking about. But then when I've, I because I had read that in the Targum previously, and it, that's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, is he referencing that? Would they have known because they understood that vultures represented the idolatrous people coming, you know, against the the people of of Yah? You know, perhaps is that a reference to that? And then it made me think of, I know this was most likely fulfilled with his, you know, second coming, but does this also have to do with, you know, the final battle where where Satan gathers everybody? And, you know, can we take that to ourselves to say, well, whenever, wherever the vultures gather, that's where the body will be, you know, that's wherever Satan's, I mean, clearly, obviously he's going to, we're told he's going to gather and go fight against the camp of Yah. So obviously wherever they gather, that's where it's going to be. But I just found that kind of interesting. Like perhaps that's what that's pointing to as well, the um, Matthew 24, 28. And um, I think that was it for my notes. But this was a very good study. I really enjoyed all of it. Well, that was some really great commentary that I really enjoyed too. So um, you said so much there and it was all good. I can't even re recount everything you said but uh on <clears throat> second enoch yes it says that the first mikhil's zedek was the i think he was the 14th in line uh this was the son of you know nur and so there would have been 13 before him uh like high priest in the order uh one of which may have been his father I don't know if it was Noah or his father or whatever, but it seemed like his father was a high priest. But then, yeah, there was going to be a final 12. Um, and th the last one, of course, of that final number was going to be, we know him to be Yahushua Messiah. But what you had said, it really makes me wonder, because I was thinking that as I was reading that, like, who are these others? Um, can we find them out? Um, Eliyahu, Elijah, is one obvious, and yeah, the the... Um, his book of the uh, hey, no, you're you're breaking up pretty badly. Okay, well, you know, guys, oh, you're, you're loud and clear on my end. So okay, um, as long as I'm loud and clear on Josh's end, and okay, clear. This always happens at the discussion afterwards, but um, uh, we know that Eliyahu Elijah is one contender, um, obviously to be one of the perhaps the twelve. I wonder if Shem started it, and then there was like. You know, you know, I would think David would be one of them. Um, I've heard good arguments that he was. Uh, but it would be fun, as you were saying, to actually go through and try to pinpoint who they all were. And was there a, a general line of them? So that was a really good thought. Great job. Uh, anybody else had any thoughts? I have to ask, no, what did you think of the wisdom in that order of Melchizedek? I thought that was awesome. You remember i can post the verse if you don't recall it i remember you talking about it but uh post it again sure uh uh the bot doesn't work let me go find it uh 
Ollie's looking for that. I had um, thought about, you know, when um, you were speaking on Abraham shooing away the, the birds and all that, I was always on the understanding that um, Yahuwah had put Abraham to sleep. Uh, I guess I don't know if that was like a Christian doctrine that I'd had or that that's what it says in like the regular word that that he was kind of put into a trance. Um, I do know that it does say that he was shooing away the birds, but I just thought that was really interesting when you were reading that this evening that, um, you know, all that whole thing about him with the chasing all that stuff away. I thought that was really interesting. Well, he was put into um, a dream immediately afterwards uh, where he, he saw the four you know, kingdoms of the world leading all the way up to Rome slash Edom. And so, yeah, I guess the question was, was he asleep when the actual uh, covenant was cut? And, uh, you know, when the torch, when he saw the torch pass between it and uh, the fires of Gehenna, he could have been asleep by that point. But it is clear that mm -hmm. according to uh, Jasher and... Uh, other texts that he did, you know, clear birds out. So, yeah, I knew he cleared the birds out. Uh, yeah, I, I guess maybe I just misunderstood what you're reading there because I was always under the assumption that he was put into a bit of a trance and that that it was Yahweh that had walked through it with him, like for him. That uh, yeah, okay, must must have understood. Thanks. So. What you okay? So Michael, I'll I'll read what he posted here, and um and what what is the actual book reference here to this? Uh, that was Proverbs nine one through six. Um, Proverbs nine one through six. Okay. Spe oh, that's specific that's, specifically number five because that's basically a Melchizedek great but good. So wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars, which I find that to be fascinating, especially since there's seven spirits coming out of Yahuwah. She hath killed her beast. She hath mingled her wine. She hath also furnished her table. Um, and and it, it, again, that that's describing like a you know a the woman of the house. You know, for she's always like in a lot of these passages, she's putting up the meats and the food and the the you know furnishing and that kind of stuff it's always exciting to think about she does her her uh, womanly duty she has sent uh, forth her maiden she crieth upon the highest places of the city whoso is simple let him turn in hither as for him that wanteth understanding she saith to him and then here's verse five come eat of my bread and drink of my wine which i have mingled forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding that was a great connection and obviously you know the melchizedek priesthood is the the the, the heavenly uh, priesthood so that's that's pretty uh pretty awesome thought and um but i'm just going to reiterate this uh not probably where michael was wanting to go with this that you know people speak they think of i don't always know how people think of the holy spirit or the ruach HaKadosh, but you get these descriptions of the ruach HaKadosh in heaven and um you know she's she's like setting out dinner plates <laughs> And I don't say that to be like uh, you know funny or something, but it's 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 just it's a, it's a very different idea than how we speak of her in the church. I'll just put that because a lot of descriptions they just depict her that way. So does it open the the possibility of women being in the order? I think it does. Yeah, and I don't. And it sounds to me it's the wedding supper of the lamb that verse like. Spirit and the bride say she's. I remember you used to say that that she's 
Yeah, you see, you yeah. see the fa the father is sending out the invites, um, and the wisdom is the one. You know, she's she's getting all the servants out. She's getting the best meats, the best wine. She's getting all ready. She's so excited for this, and you know, she she wants all her children to come in and participate. She doesn't send out the invites. The father sends out the invites, and. And as you guys know, the parable, you know, the prophets were killed off. And finally, the king sends his own son and they kill him off. Um, but, yeah, that's it, it. Again, it's just a very, very different way than, than that has really changed my thinking um, about the Ruach HaKadosh when really digging into those and seeing her as wisdom. Yeah, as you were saying, Mary, most of the church make her masculine. There are three dudes in heaven. As above, so below. <laughs> there are just three roommates in heaven, all co-equal in power and all coexisting from throughout eternity. Just the three of three dudes. Any comments on Arcturusk and <laughs> the bear? Well, I will say, guys, I'm I'm really encouraged by the um, the notes that were taken, and some of you who had commented that that really is encouraging. And um, to um, yeah, it, so thanks for that. And just always remember, week for week, you know, just yeah, take some jot down some notes and bring them up afterwards. And you know, I'm Michael's looking at it from one angle, I'm looking at it from another angle, and and but I know you guys have all your your angles and your life experience and your research and study experience as well. And um, like learning about the, the black, that was really fascinating and how that, you know, works with linen or wool. And uh, that was, that was some great commentary. And I remember I on, on Thursday nights, Noah would, he would always get crickets. <laughs> and now I understand it once he, he asked me to do these studies. So we definitely appreciate your comments. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, uh, Irene, Irene, I'll head over to you in just a second. It's, um, it, it really is because it, you know, when you put your, you put all this research and this energy into fleshing something out and giving it, it's, um, I have to understand, I was just on the phone with somebody today, um, and he wanted me to talk to him, and um, he said that, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, tooting my own horn here, guys, I, I'm just, because I was talking to my, my wife about this, and and I'm like, I, I was telling her at dinner time, you know, I really don't think of myself as a very deep person. I just think of myself as an average person. And she's like, oh, no, you're deep. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm, it's like, she's like, nobody can talk to you because you're so deep. And um, and so I had a guy I was talking to on the phone today. And he's like, uh, he's he's like, you know, I, I, I love your research, but I really struggle comprehending what you're saying. Um, and so I'm always trying to, you know, to, to speak in a way I hopefully everyone understands me. but. So when you guys when you guys have your commentary afterwards and you guys um, you know talk about things like that and you know it just it really is encouraging and it 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 really helps the energy and um, so I do appreciate it. Go ahead, Irene. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to. I was really interested in that frequency. Where can I go to find out more about that? Maybe. Oh well, well it would be whoever was discussing that in the room, um, Michael. If you have any thoughts on it. 
I posted yeah, a good study. Um, let me try to find the link and I'll post it again on it. But yeah, there's Mary's. A lot, there's lots Mary of good stuff um, lately in the Torah garments section. You can lots of links and videos and comments. There's also a group. I don't know also where to a group that. on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. There's also a group on Facebook called Linen Railroad, run by Nathan and Chelsea Reynolds. They don't like to talk about the whole frequency thing, uh, but they do provide resources to be able to find linen, and uh, they even give away linen for free as well. I didn't get the reference to where I go uh, in on Facebook. Uh, I, it's called the in? linen. The Linen Railroad. It's a Railroad. group on Facebook. It's a private group, but you can look it up. The Linen Railroad. Okay, it'll show up, huh? Okay. And uh, I wanted to type something, but I don't know where to type if I wanted to ask questions other than using the microphone. Well, okay, so if you want to ask questions, so right now you are in the voice chat room. Right okay. above the voice chat room, there is the general voice chat, and that is where people are are writing all throughout the talk, and they're having conversations. So you could just go in there, drop a question, and either Michael or I usually see it. Um, sometimes we miss them because people are typing so fast, but uh, which is great. It's great to see lively conversations in there. So just go to the room right above this, and that's where we uh, discuss uh, or talk. Well, sometimes I'm dropping comments in there, too. I did see it with the general voice uh, before, but now I don't see it on the side panel. Isn't that weird? I like to practice <laughs> even now, but I don't know where to go. I don't see it. I see uh, uh, voice connected. It says. Okay, so there, so there's a there's the diaspora of Yasharel, and there's like a. There might be an arrow there. I wonder if there's a no. Maybe it's not collapsible. I don't know. Oh, the weekly studies. Um, so maybe it, it might disappear if you like. There's a little arrow that goes down or or the side. Sometimes uh, you, if you toy with okay. that, it might cause rooms to disappear. That could there, be. It. I went. I scrolled up and down, and it joined up with the voice chat. Uh, so it is general voice chat right now. I see it. Okay. I had to scroll it. Okay. Sorry, I'm not very good at uh, navigating here. So thank you for that. Uh, so what I do, just click on general chat and then... Uh, general voice chat, type. general voice chat, and then type out what you want to say. So there it is. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no so problem. If um, you can send me those links or that, because when you send me links, I don't know where to retrieve them. <laughs> like, where do you send it so that I could see? The last last week, I tried to get um, on uh, the Holocaust, and I don't know if you posted it or not, but I don't know where to get it. So. Oh, well, I haven't. I'm like a couple weeks behind. I haven't even got into the holocaust piece yet and um and yeah so irene so uh if anybody wanted to drop anything I just, 
I messaged her. I just sent the link in a message, so she should be able to get that. Okay, so Irene, maybe you can see where your private messages are in Discord, and um, and Michael sent you some information. Yeah, she had written here today, worry. and I wrote her back and told her it would be on BitChute soon, and I gave her a link to the BitChute. She may not know how to get back in there. Just go check your messages, and it's all in there already, Irene. There. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't know where you where where is. I can see where I can write the message, but I don't know uh, where anybody wrote me anything. Well, I'm I'm not great at explaining tech stuff. Um, so, on your are you on a phone or your computer? I'm on a laptop computer. Okay, so if it's anything, because I'm on, obviously on my computer right now. If it's anything like mine, there is a, it almost looks like Mickey Mouse's shorts. So it looks like, it always reminds me of Mickey Mouse's shorts with like two like uh, like buttons in there. But it's the top button and it says direct messages. So you're obviously able to get to the unexpected cosmology uh, because that's that one button you push. But up on the very top left, there's a circle and it says uh, direct messages if you scroll your mouse over it. And then you, if you click on that, you're going to see a list of people who have written you. Um, they should all come up, and you'll see if they're online. Like, I see Rebecca is online right now. She's got a green light. And um, and you could click on that, and you'll see what she wrote. I'm not sure if you're following me right now. But... Okay, so the, uh, direct messages. Yeah, you click on then direct messages. Uh, then underneath is Michael, and then underneath him is Rebecca. Right, so okay. you they showed up because they went into your mail. That's your mailbox, and so Michael just wrote you, and before that, Rebecca just wrote you. So if you click on those, then you can be in a direct conversation with each of them. You can uh, see what they wrote you, and you can respond back to them. Okay. If I do it now, will I disrupt something? No, you no. I mean you should be able to go all over the Discord and type. The, I see. I see people having conversations in all different rooms while I'm talking, so um, that shouldn't be a problem. Okay. Just be sure to turn off your microphone if you're not talking, just oh. so you know. Yes, I'll turn it off now. Um, I was going to make, I was taking notes, so she just throw this out there, what I wrote here. Um, should I or not? <laughs> yes, please do, if you have any... Okay. any Okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, where did I write it? Uh, there was some uh, something that I wrote here. Okay, Noah was... Uh, I'll skip that one because that's not clear. You, you mentioned the badge of priesthood? Yes, in, uh, in Second Enoch, uh, yes. Okay, so... What I wrote, well, I'd like to hear what you have to say about the badge of priesthood. I, I don't, I, I think I put it out there, like, what do you guys think? Because I, they okay. recognize what the badge of priesthood is. I don't know what that looked like. I, um, I remember having a study where the badge of the priesthood, what I thought might be, was the ephod that they carried on their chest. And it had all the stones of the tribes of Israel. 
on it. But I don't know what that represented. Does anybody recall? Well, uh, badge? yeah, so the, the Levites, which is, you know, different than the Melchizedek's, they had um, an ephod on them with all the different, um, uh, you know, jewels uh, that represented the different tribes, all 12 tribes. And um, so that, that's kind of interesting. I, I probably should have stated that badge could also be read like Mark. But again, I'm not I'm reading from an English Targum and I didn't want to just make up words. But I almost wonder if it was saying the, the mark of the priesthood. Uh, which would be very, very interesting because um, we talked about oh. different like Mark of the Beast and so on and so forth. But again, oh. I, I I don't know what, what it is that they recognize as the mark of the order of the Melchizedek priesthood. I don't I don't know what that is. Okay, so the the it was the tribes that carried the ephod on their chest, not the Melchizedek priests. Is that would that well, be correct? Well, yeah, so in uh, Leviticus, we get great details on the Levite priests and what they are to wear. And the, the ephod is described, I don't know which chapter, but it's in Leviticus. And we never get clothing attire for uh, the Melchizedek. And the Melchizedek is a different priesthood than the Levites. And in fact, that's one of the yeah. themes of, of Hebrews, obviously, that the, the Torah was transferred by necessity from the Levites to the Melchizedeks. And what's interesting, so this is, you know, a whole discussion that I've never gotten into, but then you see um, a prophecy that during the, the millennial kingdom that the Levites would be back. Um, and so you don't really see the Melchizedeks ruling the earth. It seems like the Levites rule the earth and the Melchizedeks are in heaven. Um, you don't see, you know, some of the interesting connections comparisons or contrasts is that the levites i've never seen a levite ascend to heaven now moshe went to heaven but he came back um but i've never seen the levites get transferred to heaven or to eden but plenty of mckilzedek's dead that's really interesting uh, just like yahusha yahusha went to heaven and that was in a long tradition of the mckilzedek so and he wasn't a levite so there are differences to be noted between the two Okay, well, looks like one belongs to the heavenly and the other one belongs to the earthly. Right, and that's that's um, at least my understanding and why that's the whole important theme of Hebrews that um, that it was by necessity. It, it wasn't that the Torah was done away with, but the Torah was transferred to the Melchizedek under Yahushua Messiah because he's not a Levite, but he's our high priest under that order instead of the Levite order. So it's still it's still the Torah being um, fleshed out, lived out, but through a different order of priests than uh, would be Aaron, the high priest, the Levite. And it's based on your behavior, too. So I'm assuming a Levite that behaved well could become a Melchizedek. Hmm, interesting. And the other uh, thing I noted here, there was three. Uh... One, the second one is, he said to take, to take you to another land, and that sparked uh, a thought in my mind when uh, I saw the video that this realm we live in is part of a bigger realm, like other land. And then I think he said there was um, probably the Jerusalem 
Israel is not even on this realm. It could be other lands that we don't know about yet. Remind me again where, because remind me again where it said that. Yeah, I, I, um, I, is there slide numbers? Yeah, there was pages, but I didn't write it down. I didn't think of it then. So, uh, what, what I'm asking you to take you to another land where, where you spoke about it on what page that was, is that what you're asking me? Was it, was it the earlier, was it the Genesis presentation or the, 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 I, uh, I think it was uh, the, mm, no, the earlier one. The mud fossil. Okay. Um, that, oh man, that, that, I remember saying that line and I, I want to get the context of that downright because yeah, that has my interest as well. Um, and I was, um, I was thinking a lot about that. Was the context, was it Moshe? Um, or, oh man, uh, whatever. I can't comment on that until I see the, the actual verse in front of me, but, um, I've been thinking a lot about that because in Deuteronomy, we finished our Torah portions today, and uh, which is exciting. And we finished our fourth cycle going through it as a family. And um, it, it, the last chapter, particularly in the Targum of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, I think it ends with 33. It might be 34, but uh, you know the sacred number 33. And um, it talks a lot about the, the Millennial Kingdom in there. And... Um, Interestingly enough, I was looking at it. It never says that um, Israel is going to inhabit the millennial, uh, that actual land, the millennial kingdom. I thought that was really interesting. And um, it talked about um, uh, Moses saw, like, I think, another land. I'd have to go back into it again, and I need to really study it out because you, know, you guys know my thoughts on that. But the, um, I think you guys probably do, but the, the land uh, changed. Um, it changed. Um, in uh, the Middle Kingdom, that it was not the land of Israel anymore. That Yah divorced that land. Sir, uh, uh, you're muffled a bit. You're mu and I can't hear you. Sorry, you're a bit muffled. Okay. Well, it's probably because it's that time of night, and you guys know how the FBI like to shut me down after my. They, they're kind enough to let me give my presentation, but then they <laughs> they like shutting me down. <laughs> Somebody putting their hand over your mouth. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for all that, uh, all those notes. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Hey, I'd like to ask you a question, Noel, about, uh, did you mention, or was it, well, Michael was reading where there was something about uh, Abraham, Abraham and uh, Nimrod, like they had interaction or they existed at the same time. I thought that they were separated by a long period of time. Okay, so it, there, there's two proposed timelines put forward in the Bible, and it's going to depend on what version you're reading. If you are reading from the Greek LXX, which basically nobody reads from today, at some point in history, the church decided they were no longer going to go by the LXX. They decided they were going to go by the Hebrew Masoretic. And um, the Hebrew Masoretic, which is the youngest of all translations, um, it puts forward a timeline, which would state, like, if you've heard people say that we're, like, right around the year 6,000 of history, that's because the Masoretic deems it so. According to the LXX, the timeline put forward was that, uh, it's, it's my 
timeline I'm going with that, that I, I feel is the most accurate is that Messiah arrived in the year 5,500 and that in the year 6,500 years later, the millennial kingdom came in. Now, um, according to the Masoretic, Yahushua Messiah arrived around in the year like 4,000. So right there, you have a discrepancy of about 1,500 years that are separated. That's a huge difference. Um, and so the Masoretic actually will cut out, like I think it's Shem's grandson. They cut him out. They, they do some cheats. And uh, according to the Masoretic timeline, uh, I think Abraham arrived like 400 years after Noah's flood or something in the whereabouts. Whereas in the LXX, he arrives about a thousand years after the flood. So huge difference. So that's one of the things that are, are hotly debated. Because if I'm saying the LXX is correct, how in the world could um, Abraham coexist with Nimrod? Um, well, how... if Nimrod was a Nephilim, then he probably lived a long time, right? Precisely. Okay. So there is, as I have pointed out, there are three players. Okay, so my my, you know, obviously, however you look at this, somebody came in and and said we are no longer going with this timeline. Either the LXX is correct, or the Masoretic is correct. Interestingly enough, there are a bunch of books that all agree with the LXX, and then there are a bunch of books that agree with the Masoretic. The thing is, though, is that all the books that agree with the LXX. All the timelines are precise. All the books that agree with the Masoretic, they're all off. Jasher doesn't fully agree, but they, they tend to, you know, they're on the Masoretic timeline. Jubilees, I don't think, agrees. They're all off. And so somebody came in and they they changed the years. They were trying to hide. You know, my view is that they were hiding the millennial kingdom. Um, they were hiding what year, because it's interesting that the gospel of Nicodemus ends with the LXX timeline. And Pontius Pilate approaches the, the, the priest of the, the temple, and the priests say that they added up the years, and that it was 5,500, Messiah arrived, just as he said he would, and that, you know, that brings in the point that the, the kingdom would be executed in 500 years later. They, I think when they realize that, they're like, oh, shoot, we got to go in and change all this, right? We got to hide this from people. Um, so I think that the Alex is more uh, uh, correct. Now, that brings in the issue of three individuals, Nimrod, Shem, and Og. All three of them don't make sense on a purely material level in the LXX. They, they, they shouldn't exist. They shouldn't coexist together. Nimrod should have been dead years before Abraham was born. And yet, from the disaster, Nimrod is trying to put Abraham to death as a baby. And then as an adult, he throws him into a fiery, uh, into a furnace. Um, and that is according to the Aramaic Targum as well as the language of Abraham and so on. And so um, I'm, I'm working on a piece that's been working on for several months, and maybe I'll finish it and present it. So that I teased it a couple weeks ago. Everyone seemed to um, react really well to it, and showing that there appears to be several lives of Nimrod. Um, and uh, he appeared, uh, my theory is that the Nimrod himself is a. Um, is a titan um, named Gilgamesh who was alive before the flood. Gilgamesh was killed. Gilgamesh reappeared again after the flood as a giant, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, the same Gilgamesh is Nimrod, and that there were actually multiple Nimrods. Uh, one of the uh, one account has Shem 
actually in an epic Lord of the Rings style battle, approaching uh, Nimrod with an army, and Shem personally cuts Nimrod up. And Semiramis, who is his mom, then goes and you know does the profane things with his you know his member. That was after Shem killed him. But then we read in Jasher that Yaakov killed him years later. So it's like, well, what's going on, right? Um, and then of course, um, uh, Og, you know, is uh, on surface level he was a giant, but you know, deeper the guy was a Rephaim, which is actually a shade. He's actually a uh, he's actually like a like a god, like a um, a divine being in a way. He's not. He's actually he was um, the Canaanites referred to him as the protector of the graves, and he would he would protect them. So it's interesting that when Moses and Israelites are coming in, he's coming in to protect the land, and Moses kills him. So there's something more going on there. If he was the king of the underworld, um, he's kind of closely associated with Baal. And then with Shem, um, I as I pointed out that. By the time Abraham is born, I think Shem is already dead. Um, he's uh, he's Melchizedek by this point. He's actually uh, ascended, and he is a um, uh, you know Shem school. It's a supernatural school. Um, all accounts seem to paint that picture. It's 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 not purely material. It's not a post Newtonian type of uh, school you can, you can go to. So that's why I was saying that those three people. And I, again, I'll be giving a presentation on, on this. And I think it'll be really interesting. Um, to show that you can actually bring the two timelines together and it still makes sense. You don't have to throw out, like, if you go with the LXX, you don't have to throw out Dasher, you don't have to throw out Jubilee, you don't have to throw out Masteretic. You can, they still make sense. Um, just because someone went in and fudged the numbers around. So, well, that, that's great. Thank you for answering my question. Yeah, hopefully I was able to answer it um, and, and with clarity. And so... It was, uh, uh, that day. It was way more exciting than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> the answer. So, pretty wild that there's so many potential histories. Irene, just so you know, too, I'm, I'm going to shut off. Uh, I don't know if you can shut off your microphone just so there's no back, uh, back noise uh, if you're not I going was, to. I was going to... I was gonna make a comment, but uh, oh, please do. Um, let's see. What was I? <laughs> what is uh? This wasn't it. It just left me. But uh, what's LXX? That's That's like seventy. Yeah, L correct. Seventy what? It's a so manuscript or what is that? Okay, so uh, apparently I sound like I'm underwater right now. So apologies, everyone. You guys know what happens at the end of the nights. It's like it's, it's so. Anyways, the the LXX means seventy, uh, and it is the Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint, and apparently the seventy was to represent the seventy scribes that put it together. It's very almost odd that you know there are also seventy nations, seventy Elohim, uh, but there are apparently the seventy scribes that put it together. So the LXX just it, it's it's I guess kind of like a a scholarly nerd way to refer to the Greek Septuagint. Well, I uh, I was kind of looking into the Septuagint and its origin, and it doesn't look like it's authentic. So, and and then the so-called New Testament was uh, re was rewritten by the papal system, and that was rewritten in Latin. So they're both the same type of people. That wrote those, uh, presented those 
to us. And well, uh, well, yeah, okay. I mean, everyone has their opinions. I, I, I think that the LXX is the more accurate. I think that the best, you know, I'll use the word scholarly. You know, I, I think the best case to make is the LXX. Now, uh, for example, um, um, here's here, here's here's what I mean by this. I believe that there was a Hebrew language that closely lined up with the LXX. Now, even, of course, if we're going by the Aramaic Targum, um, it, it appears very different than both. I think that there was probably a lot whittled down. One of the reasons I read all these different books is because I just want to get at the truth. I want to you know, what are they saying? What do these texts mean? What, you know, what are the variations? Why? Um, and, you know, I obviously don't know what the, the ultimate true text is. Uh, but what's interesting is that many have commented that Yahusha, as well as the um, uh, Paul and the epistle writers, all seem to quote from the Greek LXX. Uh, Josephus does as well. Now, what's interesting about Josephus is that he claims uh, he get, he gives a lot of stuff away, like he blunders a lot. Uh, like he was clearly not in on the, the later deception. And I think part of that is because the Jews hated Josephus and, you know, he was uh, he betrayed them. Um, so they kind of left him alone. And I think that's where we catch him on a lot of stuff. Josephus claims that he was writing uh, based on Hebrew text, that he was getting inf information from Hebrew text. And yet it all sounds like the Greek LXX. So either Josephus was lying and he was just getting from the Greek LXX, which seems kind of lame. He's like, no, really, guys, I, I've got these Hebrew texts here and I'm not sharing them with you, but they sound a lot like the Greek LXX. Um, so th my, the, my point is, is that Yahusha, uh, the epistle writers and Paul, I don't think they were quoting the Greek LXX. I think they were quoting a Hebrew text that no longer exists, that closely aligns with the LXX. And some of the earliest church fathers as well were doing the same. And they flipped the script and somewhere along the lines and, the, and they decided they weren't going to go with that anymore. They seem to, uh, my theory is that they lined up with uh, some sort of conspiracy with the Jews to go with the Masoretic. Um, that's my view. And, you know, everyone is right to their opinion. I could be totally wrong. Um, I was reading about the different manuscripts that they used. And uh, there was one uh, that was found in, uh, in a monastery in Egypt. And it was ready to, it was used for kindling. And this guy, Constant Waldruff or something, his last name, I'm trying to find his name here. But uh, anyway, he got a hold of that manuscript and he said that was the closest. Uh, of uh, the manuscripts that was to tr truth. And uh, I was just looking forward to share that, but I could type it in there later was it, on. Was it, the Old was it the Old oh. Testament or the New Testament? Oh, that's the New Testament. Okay, yeah, you're probably referring to the St. Catherine's um, manuscript that was found, the, um, the not the Vaticanus, but the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, I believe that's the uh, what, that's called it's the, that one yeah it's that one yeah the wastebasket story um so th those are <laughs> those are fighting words with uh anyone who may be a king james only i don't i don't know how i feel about all that anymore uh yeah. i but I, I i feel most comfortable with the texas receptus and um that's what the uh i know the sephard uses um the codex Sinaiticus is just one single uh text 
whereas the the Textus Receptus is many many texts brought together. Um, so, and you know, obviously the uh, the Codex Sinaiticus as well as the Vaticanus are the two Greek texts that are used for almost every single Bible out there, uh, starting with the NIV and going down the list. And I'm not a King James only people uh, person, just so everyone knows, but the King James and uh, I think the Wycliffe and a, uh, very few will actually use the Texas Receptus, um, which is, you know, what I feel most comfortable with. So. They call it uh, an Aleph, uh, yeah, the Aleph Syntheticus or something like that? The, oh, well, the, Codex, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. Yeah, but it was also in Hebrew, Aleph, Aleph something. Okay. Yeah, same name, but just in Hebrew. Okay. You know, Aleph, like uh, ABC, Aleph. Okay. Okay, so. Very good. So that was, uh, uh, I think that was it for my uh, questions here. Thank you, but Irene. I'll... Thank you, Irene. Um, and uh, Jay Lind or Joshua said on here that he asked, who said that the Levitical priest could earn being a Michelle Zedek priest earlier? And Michael said that. And um, it, Michael's response was, um, or his reason was actually a really good one because, um, like there doesn't seem to be a, I guess the, there, there seems to be no argument ever put forward that I ever seen that there was a specific bloodline. Now, obviously the sons of Seth, that was a bloodline. Um, and, um, you don't see the sons of Cain becoming, uh, a Mikhilzadek, but, um, the idea was is that yes, even a Levite could become a Mikilzadek, uh based on their behavior, not their bloodline. That makes total sense. I mean, why would you discredit a Levite if uh, some other tribe could become one? So that's interesting. I've never thought about it that way. I've always understood that it was uh, Melchizedek priesthood, then Levitical priesthood, and then transitioned back to the Melchizedek priesthood. Um, but it's an interesting thought and something I think that you see, especially in the Renewed Covenant, like the the story of the, the ten virgins, the five having their lamps, the five not. And uh, it, I think it supports the idea that there's different, and I think you've talked about this a little bit, Noel, and you as well, Michael, that there's different levels in the kingdom. Like you can be a believer, but not be the bride and a believer but not be in the kingdom and i think that ties in here with what you're saying at least if i'm understanding correctly so i think i think that's a very interesting thing that you brought up that i've never thought about michael and no yeah michael's probably talked about that uh some and um one of the i there are so many things i want to do a study on guys but one of the ones i've been wanting to do for some time i think it would be helpful for everyone is just to look at the temple structure uh, how it's laid out, and then look at it from a believing, faithful obedience perspective. For example, um, we know that in the temple there was the outer court of the Gentiles. The outer court, mind you. Now, they were still able to go in, and they could still be saved, but they're in the court of the Gentiles. And so you hear that all the time from Christians. They're like, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm a, I'm a Gentile. I'm like, okay, you want that's your aspiration? You want to be uh, in the outer court of the Gentiles for all eternity? They don't think of it that way. They think of it almost like this... Uh, you know, we're all going to be equals and there's no going to be nobody going to be greater. I hear this all the time. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what life you live. We'll just all get a reward and we'll all be able to enter his presence. And and I'm like, no, 
we won't. We will not all be in his presence equally. Um, if it's anything like the setup on earth, um, how it's been described in scripture. And when we, um, this should also, you know, when it comes to working out our faith, our, our, our salvation with fear and trembling, we really need to think about this. Uh, because as you get closer to the most high in the temple system, um, all, you know, it starts out with hundreds or th probably thousands of Levite priests, just thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And then as you go in closer, it, it really starts dwindling down until you finally get to the high priest. And once a year, the high priest is going into the Holy of Holies. And it's like that in our, in our spiritual walk. Um, I think all of you can probably relate to this, that uh, as closer as you want to get to Yah and, and you, you start getting more knowledge, more wisdom, you start knowing him better, um, you start being more obedient to him, you start finding more and more people that are falling away. They're like, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. And they're just, they, they, they're, they don't have the depth as you do because they're, they're just not interested. They don't want to know him in the same way. And you start finding the walk to be, lo uh, to be uh, lonelier and lonelier. It starts becoming harder to find somebody who is on that journey with you uh, because it's the same way as the temple system. You've already left the, uh, the, the, the outer core of the Gentiles. They're way back there. Uh, they've they they all think that you've gone crazy and you know you're you've lost it you know because that's where the party is at right the, the court of the gentiles and the thing is though is that the the fear and trembling part is that everybody needs i can't say this enough is that the closer you get to elohim the more dangerous and treacherous it gets the more you are under attack from satan the more you are likely to fall away the people in the church who are there, it, you know, I've heard it in this room from you guys. You came out of the church and you would say like things like, um, you know, we were kind of in this circle, circular mode. We never really got anywhere. We never really learned anything, never resolved anything. It was just set up to kind of keep you there tithing. And, um, and you know, when you're, when you're on this journey, there's like a – like so people are in that their whole life. It's just this – it's like the caucus race from Alice in Wonderland. Um, and you know, all trying to, to get dry and nobody's getting dry. And what happens is, is that I think Yahoo is pruning and we're seeing the falling away, the closer you get, because Yahoo is like, nope, nope, nope. He doesn't make the cut. He doesn't make the cut. He doesn't make the cut. You're not coming in my presence. Gone, gone. And, and so as if we want to get closer to Yahuwah, we got to take this seriously. And we got to be like, um, yeah, I want to live a set apart, holy life. I want to get closer to you. And then he will bring us, you know, closer in. But we're going to feel alone. We're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to have the people around us. And so, just something to think about. And I would like to really do dig into a study on that, and just show, um, you know, compare the temple uh, to our everyday life. And um, if anybody, well, go ahead. I have a little comment on the uh, structure of the temple. You know how. Uh, make a picture of the te of the temple that was in uh, Jerusalem and it's rectangular I'm sorry can you hear me I can hear you yes oh, oh okay um, <clears throat> I, I uh, saw this guy by the name of Andrew Hoy and he said that the temple was the shape like of the flat earth it was like a dome it was not rectangular and and all that so I found it really interesting so I really was looking into that 
And uh, Moses was the only one that saw that pattern. The Yahuwah showed it to him, structure from heaven. And so he knew how to build it. But now people uh, are trying to build what um, Moses, uh, what is described in scripture. And so they build this rectangular shape of the structure of the temple. And um, Andrew Hoy comes along and um, he was visiting in uh, Israel and it was by the Ruach that show, shared him about the curtains because he wondered how come they talk about these curtains, curtains, curtains. And so because he was, uh, 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 he was trained in some kind of, um, anyway, so he knew the, the dynamics of what was spoken there. And, um, and so he constructed the, uh, the temple and it was round, just like the flat earth dome, domed flat earth, but it's not really a, a circle. It's got like 10 sides, but in a circular fashion. And, uh, all this stuff about dismantling it and all that it must have taken a lot of time because over a thousand people could fit into that so i don't know if anybody went to look at andrew hoy um temple structure or whatever that's called now yeah anyway, yeah i have andrew a couple of years ago andrew hoy actually wrote an article for cosmology and you guys can find it on there and he talks about the uh, the temple um, and or the, I should say the tabernacle in the wilderness, and that was uh, yeah, good, good. So, uh, Leah asked, Can I explain the falling away? Um, and falling away, in my opinion, always refers to falling away from uh, obedience to the Torah. Um, and so, since I've been on this walk, uh, trying you know, wanting to pursue Yahuwah's instructions and in righteous living for my life and the life of my family. Uh, I have never seen as much falling away as I have in the last few years. Uh, growing up in the church, you know, I did see people leave the church now and then. And um, for all I know, they were probably pursuing the father. I look back at that. I probably thought they were like, back then I'm like, oh, these people fell away. They were probably fleeing the church to pursue the father. Uh, but um, as I've, I've stated time and again to everyone in this room, to everyone in this room, um, that if you want out of this, uh, there is no shortage of excuses out there. I mean, you could find plenty of justifications. Let me explain this. In Romans chapter five, I think it was, uh, Paul talks about, he says the very provocative statement that he says, where, uh, wherever the Torah is, uh, rebellion and sin increase. Um, and he's saying that, um, that when, when, and he was talking about the wilderness generation, that they did not rebel against Yahuwah until they were presented with his Torah. When they saw the Torah, they didn't like the character of the Father. They didn't like who he was. They didn't want to be obedient, and they rebelled. And so it, I, I, the, close, the more I see Torah, the more I see people rebelling against it. Um, before they're presented it, like that, it's not like they don't really have anything to rebel against. Um, and so what happens is, is in this Torah walk, it, it becomes, um, it's kind of like a trending thing online and, you know, in the Torah community, a lot of people, they come into it for different reasons. One of the reasons probably is because they want to stick it to the man. They want to stick it to the church and show them how wrong they are. And they're, they're never really circumcised of the heart. Um, but they, they start coming into this 
and you know slapping people on top of the head with their the, their their Torah and their the Bible and be like you need to obey this and this kind of stuff whatever whatever it could be tons of different things but ultimately they come into it and they go like you know I really don't you know they give it two or three years and they're like I don't like who the father is I don't like who he's revealed to be in this I don't I don't want this anymore this is a burden to me it's I I don't like keeping the Sabbath I don't like these laws I don't like you know this kind of stuff and they if you want to find uh, a justification to prove the Bible is pagan or a, 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 it was a plagiarized from some Babylonian book or whatever, you know, just whatever it is, uh, you know, Jesus is, is um, you know, Dionysus or whatever. There are tons of justifications you can make, everyone can make to, uh, to say, I'm not doing this anymore and leave. And the reason I say that is because that's what I mean by the following way that I have seen more people on this walk in tour on this narrow road fall away than I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so everybody needs to be on their guard because if you're coming closer to the truth, uh, we don't take that for granted. Don't be, you know, don't be cocky or proud. Uh, realize that like there are more darts coming your way and um, you can very easily succumb to the fragility of your own mind, the darkness of your own mind. It, if it's not, uh, as Psalms 119, 105 says, if it's not uh, the the menorah, uh, the the lamp of Yahuwah guiding the way, then then you're you're in total darkness. And you may think you're in the light, but it, you're a self-illumination that is not the Ruach HaKadosh. So. I would agree with that. I, uh, I've i seen more people in my walk uh, fall away more so in this thing that it's really actually scary and and to even go and even renounce not just Yahushua, but just going and renouncing Yahuwah, like not even believing in a creator of the heavens and the earth. And um, it's, it is kind of scary when you think about it. And that's why I think it's really important that we do stay humble and that we're constantly praying without ceasing and um, you know, trying to encourage one another instead of tearing, you know, each other down. Yeah, it is. It has, um, seeing, seeing all that has happened around me, um, it has really, in, in a way, it's just made me praise the father so much more of like, like, thank you that I have not fallen away. It's all by you. It's not by anything I did because it's absolutely the, the fact that I'm still standing in this with how many body counts there has been of people dropping to the left and right, like flies around me. Uh, the, the number of people that have come to cosmology and have fallen away. Um, it, it's, and it's just not this ministry. It's, it's, it's all the ministries. You go to any of the Torah, anyone that like, like, people very close and dear to them falling away and it's um and to see actual leaders and all sorts of stuff it's um it's it's like it, it's humbling it's like wow like like i just pray that yod never allows me that never allows that to happen to me because it's a very real uh, possibility for a lot of us and we just need to be on a guard this is why it says that you know yahusha is our shield right our salvation so if you if you remove that shield what's going to happen just think about that. Yeah, exactly. If you, that, and that's the thing is, that if you remove that shield, that uh, that you, I was gonna say something, but I forgot. So excuse me. I know it's that time of night, isn't it? Well, some of you guys are on the uh, west coast, and it's 
It's only 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> it's getting late here for me. So I have something to add, if I can, about the um, the priesthood and Melchizedek and the bloodline of, of Yahusha. Um, so for, um, and I actually have a question on that too. But um, so the way I always understood it was Jacob, I don't know if Jacob would have been a Melchizedek and if it would have passed down to him, but I, I thought I read somewhere or I understood at some point that Jacob would have had that to be passed down. And then because Reuben um, sinned, you know, by, by taking his father's um, concubine, that the the inheritance was split. It was no longer all, the, it, like, it was supposed to all go to Reuben, but it was split. So the, now Levi got the priesthood, Yehuda got the kingship, and then Joseph got the rights as the firstborn, which went to Ephraim. Um, and then that's where the Levitical priesthood went down the line. And then Yahusha came back about and got the Melchizedek priesthood it was turned back over um and then but then seeing you know that elijah was po possibly a melchizedek or was you know from from according to the book the order of elijah and then you know passed down to elisha after him and so there would have been two priesthoods going at the same time like the melchizedek one and the levitical and then also to add um yahusha would have i mean if stop me if i'm if i'm wrong but he would have been of both the levitical um, bloodline and Yehuda, because if we look at um, Yehuda, uh, Judah, you know, Yehuda himself, he started off the, the line with Tamar, and was she not a daughter of Levi? So he would have had both bloodlines. And even going down to Mary, she was the cousin of Elizabeth. And if we look at um, where it talks about John the Baptist, and I forget which, it's like the beginning of one of the Gospels, but it tells us that she was of the daughters of Aaron. So in being Mary, being her cousin, she had to have had you know, Levitical um, bloodline as well. So I believe he had both through Mary, both the, the bloodline of um, Judah and Levi. So, so I guess that's, you know, let me know your thoughts on that. And then also, you know, what are your thoughts on both the Melchizedek and Levitical priesthood going on at the same time? I'm, I'm confused on where you got Tamar being from Levi, because she was the, either the daughter or granddaughter of Shem. Um, you know, I mean, Levi was a brother of Yehuda, so I'm not sure where you got that from. Yeah, I'll have to look. I mean, maybe I'm not right, but I thought somewhere it said that she was a daughter of a priest and that she, and maybe, so is it Shem, is that that's where the daughter of the priest came? And I guess I assumed she would have been the daughter from Levi, no, she, but that. She was, oh, a, she was either a daughter or a granddaughter, depending on which text you read. Um, I'm more, uh, it, it, um, so, and I don't know whether she was a daughter or a granddaughter, but either way, yeah, she she came from Shem, and Shem was a priest, and you know, obviously Mekilzedek. So, um, she was a, I guess, genetically related to a Mekilzedek, but then so were all of them, right? Abraham was, and um, and the only difference with her is that she was more closely related than uh, Yaakov, being you know several generations removed, um. But um, yeah, I mean, what you said is all true. I mean, obviously, Reuben, he lost his uh, inheritance and it, it got split up between the three of them and the kingship went to Yehuda. And so from that point forward, it was always Yehuda that had to rule as king, always. Um, 
it's almost like I, I've used the analogy of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia that they would say, in, you know, in Narnia, amongst all the talking animals, that things were never right unless if there was a son of Adam or daughter of Eve ruling. And it was the same thing that it was always had to be a, a so even when I did the study on Israel being transferred to a new land, uh, because they had been divorced from the land, they were transferred to a new land, they still had to have Yehuda ruling over them. It always had to be Yehuda. And that's why I think that when Messiah was rejected from the land of Yehuda, uh, that they were he was embraced in the land of Israel as king. And um, so, yeah, so in terms of two at once, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I, I haven't done enough of a deep dive on this to answer that question. On There were clearly, uh, I think, Mechizedeks on the earth while there were Levites on the earth. Um, I think, uh, especially if, according to Second Enoch, it says that the the final Melchizedek, which we know is Messiah, would be the last of a twelfth. Um, so that means there were eleven before him. Uh, yeah, who were those people? Right, they would have been contemporaries of Levite priest. So I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's a really good question, and that's that's a good study, um, guys. Just so you guys know, it is it is starting to get late. It's eleven fifteen here on the Eastern Seaboard. And um, I have to make the decision as to, you know, I have like a stack of things I could go through and I have to make the decision. What am I going to present next week? Which means I have to start working on it tomorrow. Um, and uh, it's always, <laughs> sometimes it's like, oh man, I have like 10 things I want to do at once, but I have to make a decision.